What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I'm Baron Wolfgang von Trips, racing car driver and hero to millions. Ah, sweet Caroline, it's gonna be all right. It's a great story. It's really strong. And von Tripp, he's like a like a modern day superman. You did an absolutely marvelous job. But why limit ourselves? What do you mean? Well, the big guy, he wants to well, he wants to start all over again as a white man. And Jay, let me tell you, it's a much bigger ball game that way. Really. You see, people here aren't used to seeing people who look like you. When they're looking at this table, it makes me nervous. I think it's effeminate to dress up the way you do. You're all dolled up like a woman. The Samantha doll, is that what you call a woman? I'll buy you anything. Just be my hot <laughs> Mama, I'm a filmmaker. Look, baby, we got to start facing facts. Point is, I can't take care of you anymore. But you can take care of yourself. But I believe in you. I know you can get it off. You're just feeling down. Come on! I'm trying to tell you the truth. I'm saying this for your own damn survival. You've got to leave. You're going, Caroline. You're going. Because I've got things to do that I don't want you to see. It's all that Nice, crisp, cookies. You really are a sharp-looking dude. Isn't dude the word you guys use? Come down, cold man. Blow the damn hole, man. man. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Mr. David Walker. Hello, how you doing? Also back in the booth is Father Malone. Yeah, could you please call me the Coke Man for the rest of the episode? Black History Month continues with a look at Philip Fenty's 1977 film, The Baron, 
Originally known as Baron Wolfgang von Trips, the film stars Calvin Lockhart as Jason, a filmmaker who's trying to complete his film on von Trips, only to have everything go wrong. His money man, Coke Man, is in Dutch with one of his connections in the mob, while Jason's people in California want to recast the movie with a white guy and remove him from the project. We will be getting into spoilers as we go along talking about this movie, which is kind of hard to find, though it might be available on YouTube and other places as well. The rights to this one are a little in question. We'll talk about that as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, definitely check out the movie and then come on back. We will still be here. So David, when was the first time you saw The Baron and what did you think? So the first time I saw The Baron was under the title Black Hue. C-U-E. Why Black Hue? I don't know. He doesn't play pool. (laughs) I know. I know. So I saw it on VHS. This had to have been 95, 96, maybe. So it was, it was, it was mid nineties. And I just happened. It was one of those things like I had memberships at video stores all over the city. I'm sure you remember these days where it was like you would get a membership at a video store because they had one movie that nobody else had. And I don't remember why I went to this particular store, but I, I saw Black Hue and I, Calvin Lockhart was not on the cover of the box, but it said Calvin Lockhart. And I was like, okay, I like Calvin. Check out this movie. And honestly, I have such a special place in my heart for this movie. I, I love it. It's not a perfect movie. And, and we can talk about some of the things that are wrong with it because I've since learned a lot of the backstory of it. But I'm a huge Calvin Lockhart fan, but I'm an even bigger fan of Charles McGregor, who plays Coke Man. And this is like one of his, 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 it's probably his biggest role, actually, because it's bigger than his role in Superfly. And, and he is just an interesting person in general. He, there's a whole interesting backstory about him. And Father Malone, how about yourself? I saw this around 93, 94 at a film festival at the New Art in Los Angeles. I went to see Truck Turner and Superfly and uh, somewhere sandwiched in between was the Baron. And it blew my mind because the opening was not what I expected, like a comic book adventure. And I was suddenly very interested in that movie. And then the movie that followed was even better. And I had already seen Superfly and this played directly before Superfly. And now I knew that it was the same writer. I ended up liking the Baron more than Superfly, even on the on the big screen. Like maybe it's maybe it's a little more gentle in its nature, but it just seems so better <laughs> in some way. So that was my initial impression of it. And then I haven't seen it for years and years and years because, as you said, Mike, where the hell is it? So I'm 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 glad to be on here and I'm glad to got to uh, watch it a couple of times again. Now, there was a rumor that Code Red was going to put this out. I think they announced that last year, but Code Red was notorious for announcing things and then it taking so long for the movie to come out that the rights might even revert or somebody else might buy the rights or just they might lose them. Banana Man, RIP, was no businessman. He just did not know how to run a business. And I remember when we did a an episode on Raw Force he had announced that they were going to put out Raw Force on Code Red, and I was asking, oh, hey, you know, you managed to find, I can't remember if it was the writer or director, whoever I didn't interview, and he was just so paranoid about stuff, and I talk about that in the the Raw Force episode, check it out, and then 
this came out, you know, the announcement of the Baron came out and it was, you know, with exclusive interview with Philip Venti. So I'm like, okay, Phil's around. I'm trying to find him. I've looked for over a year trying to find Philip Venti and so far no luck. So unless things magically change over the next two weeks between when we record this and when it comes out, there's no interview with Philip Fenty. There should be an interview with cinematographer Alan Metzger should be on this. So at least we've got that going for us. But yeah, no Fenty, unfortunately. But luckily, David has talked with Phil, so we can hear a little bit more about that. But yeah, to your point, as far as Superfly, like this is so much more relatable because obviously I'm not a pimp, even though, you know, there are rumors out there, you know, I'm not a, a drug pusher. So this guy who's this aspiring filmmaker who's just like got all these plates spinning and trying to keep everything going. I mean, that's super relatable to me. And I love movies like this where they start as one thing and then boom, oh, actually you're watching a movie and it's this guy's movie. It's Calvin Lockhart as Jason. It's his movie. And then we move into all of the machinations behind the scenes as far as him trying to make this movie that we were just watching, basically called The Baron. Because at first I was like, oh, The Baron, just like John Daniels in Candy Tangerine Man, he was named Baron. Oh, wow. Maybe this is a sequel. No, totally different thing. First off, it's just, it's great to be talking to two other people who've seen the movie because it's so few people have seen it. The fact that you got to see projected on a big screen. Like, I don't know anybody who's seen that, you know, it's, it's like, was it, do you know if it was, I'm assuming it was a print. Was it a film print? It was a 16 millimeter mag print. I was a projectionist with the sister theater, New Art. So I got to actually see the movie twice. To go back to Philip Fenty, I've been trying to track him down again for years. I used to have his, his number back in the nineties. I probably haven't talked to him since maybe 2000, 2001. There was one of those DVD startups that wanted to do something with the movie and and so I had gotten in touch with him and I've since been trying to, as, as near as I can tell, he's still around, but he, he'd be pushing 80 or so at this point. But there doesn't seem to be any social media presence, uh, very little online presence. And I had heard that um, Marlene Clark, there's a lot of rumors. There's this, this is one of those movies that's uh, is as many rumors as there are facts, I think, about it. It's a fascinating story. Just the movie itself, the way that it plays out is... I mean, I saw this one, I can't remember, it must have been off of a VHS copy probably 10 years ago or so, and it just hit me so right. And I was like, again, like it starts off as one movie, it switches, you know, we suddenly realize we're in the editing suite watching the movie along with the filmmaker and the editor. We see his struggles, the editor's just like, hey man, you gotta pay me, like I haven't been paid, and he's going through his money. And it's just all ones and then like $100 bill when I was on the outside. So it gives the editor $100 and it's just like, okay, you know, like, let's keep this thing going. And then he flies out to Los Angeles. He meets up with Raymond St. Jacques, who I don't know if Raymond could actually ride a horse or not. But the joke of the, his character, he's like some sort of connection to Hollywood and he cannot control this horse very well at all. And after he tells Calvin Lockhart, hey, man, you know, they love the story. The producers love the story. They just, they want to redo it with the white guy. And so it's like, oh, fuck. And then Jason's like, well, at least, you know, I'll be a producer. You know, this will be great. He's like, yeah, no, they don't even want you on the project. And then I love when he like smacks the horse in the ass and it goes running off. <laughs> yeah. 
gives that the horse jumps over the, this fence and you see Raymond St. Jacques stunt man just fall off of that horse. I'm just like, right on. That is fantastic. And I love later on in the movie when you see him, he's got the big fucking neck brace on. When that horse goes down, the dust cloud goes up, but that stuntman gets dragged for a little while and then comes loose. So, my God, what a harrowing scene. And it's heartbreaking, too, because just what, you know, Mike, you're talking about relatable. It's like there's a lot of indie filmmakers who've gone through similar things, right? Like you just want to make your movie and suddenly you're, you're about to be ousted from the whole thing. That's a, that's a movie that like, I wish more people could see it. So, you know, maybe fingers crossed something will change at some point and we can get it out there. I'd also like to see the movie within the movie completed because I'm loving it. That little kid. What's your name, mister? I am Baron Wolfgang von Trips. What a surreal scene. These kids with lacrosse guards on their arms looking like tiny robots. And out in this, is it an adoption agency with a mansion? I don't even know where it is. Amongst other things, I would love to get my hands on, on the script, which Philip Fenty, I'm trying to. The person who he wrote it with, Nelson Lyon. Yeah, who I don't, has he done anything else? Oh yeah, he did quite a bit, including a lot of coke and other drugs with John Belushi. He was one of the last people to be with John Belushi while he was still alive. Before this, he had done the telephone book, which he wrote and directed. Uh, He also did Spike of Bensonhurst from 88, I think it is floundering one called Baja. He was both a writer and a director. And for many, many years, uh, while for two years and 20 episodes, he wrote Saturday Night Live. So that's where he knew John Belushi from. And then apparently he kind of had a bad end. And of all the people to have a quote in his Wikipedia, it was Mark Mothersbaugh, who was a close friend of his. And he said in his later years, he was dependent on the largesse of his friends and he died of liver cancer back in 2012. Wow. wow. Quite a life. And then Linda Fenty, who I can only assume is Philip's wife, also has a screenwriting credit. And Phil Fenty is, has a very short filmography other than working on writing Superfly, which there's a long-standing urban legend that he stole the story of Superfly from a novel and that there was a lawsuit and... Again, that's one of those things that I've never been able to confirm or deny one way or the other. But I know he had come out of advertising, which is how he got involved with um, Gordon Parks Jr. with with Superfly. Like this was his Superfly was his attempt to break into film, and and then the Baron was meant to be the the film that established him as a filmmaker, and then it never happened. And I don't. I don't even know for sure really what he did afterwards. There's so little written about him. What you can find is usually tied to Superfly, but even that, it just talks more about the movie itself or the director or, you know, the star, but really doesn't give Fenty a lot of ink at all. And it's like, yeah, who is this person and how did this movie come to be? Because, I mean, the cast for this movie is incredible. Calvin Lockhart, you've got here. I already mentioned Raymond St. Jacques. You mentioned Marlene Clark. She is Jason's girlfriend. He's got this older sugar mama who's played by Joan Blondell, who has come up consistently on this podcast when we talked about pre-code films, when we talked about Nightmare Alley. She was the older 
reader in Nightmare Alley, and then she's in this, playing his older dowager-type woman that eventually becomes a kept man from her. Then you've got Charles McGregor, who you mentioned, who I mostly know as Charlie from Blazing Saddles. But yeah, also, he had a role in Superfly, so there's that Philip Fenty connection again. I mean, he was fantastic all the time, and I just love him in this and like how sweaty he is. It feels like the guy just sweats like crazy. And then, of course, Richard Lynch just stealing the show as the most evil motherfucker that you could possibly get, man. Chewing everything oh, uh, yes. on screen. The scenery, the lighting, the camera, his fellow actors. My God, he really went for it. Oh, my goodness. Those dogs. Those dogs weren't safe. He was going to chew on them. Oh, the Dober- those Dobermans? Yeah. Um this had to have been 20 or so years ago, maybe even longer. I, I actually saw Richard Lynch at of all places. He was at a hospital. I was, I was like visiting someone at a hospital and I saw him there. This is in Portland where I live. So I don't know if he relocated here later in life or not. And I, and I so desperately wanted to walk up to him and ask him specifically about this movie. But I was like, you know, a hospital just doesn't seem like a place to walk up to somebody and go, hey, what can you tell me about the Baron? And and um, he had really bad burns. In 1968, on LSD, he lit himself on fire. See, and I just assumed that he just had like the Richard Burton complexion, right? And that, that later on he got burned. I didn't know it was that far back. 68, wow. Well, you can't really see that he has the burns in this movie because... All I've seen, and you know, Father Malone, you're the lucky one here having seen it projected. I am only watching this off of that shitty, beat up VHS copy that I mean, it's got those filters that they're doing in certain places. And yeah, it's just wild. I'm like, is this on purpose or is this just the way it looks? I mean, it looks like it's so many generations down from the original source. And movie was is essentially in public domain, which is why there's it's it's got. As near as as near as I can tell, at least three or four different titles. There's Black Hugh, there was the Baron, there's Baron Wolfgang on trips. That's the fate of those, especially the stuff that was coming out anywhere between really early eighties all the way up until the early nineties, those VHS releases. And we've we've all seen tons of them. I mean, I've seen I've seen movies on VHS where the the reels were put together in the wrong order, you know, and uh those and they were always put out by you know companies like magnum xenon's releases were were always a little bit better but there was magnum and paragon and and there are there's so many of them it was just it was always difficult to keep track we should also say too that this is the only feature film that gil scott heron ever did the score for and the score is amazing i love this and i don't know if it's ever officially been put out Never been put out. And it's one of those where it's just like, wow, this really is fantastic. There's quite a few times where they really focus on that. There's at least one dance sequence that's going on with Calvin Lockhart and Marlene Clark. There's a few other scenes where I'm just like, the music is really present. Like, this is really nice. This is a great score. Everything about the movie I like. I wish there was, I wish there was a better print. I wish there was, according to Fenty, there... The, the version that made it out on VHS is not the, was not the full print that there's that the final reel is missing. That's what he told me. And I don't know anyone who's ever seen the fine, the, the final reel. 
I don't know if it if, if it ever survived or not. And so that's sort of been like it's not my quite my holy grail anymore. It used to be, you know, where it was like trying to find trying to find the copy of it. The story that he had told me was that they'd actually run out of money. Are imitating life, yeah. Yeah. And and that there was a work print that was put together and that the print was stored at at a lab in LA. Somehow, and he he was never clear about this, somehow that print got sold with a bunch of other prints in the early eighties, and that's how it showed up. But the that print that got sold was missing that final reel. And and again, he's the only person who's ever told me the story. No one's ever like I've never seen proof of it. At least with, with Solomon King, when Solomon King showed up recently, like nobody knew for sure if it really existed or not. And then suddenly it was like, oh, there it is. There's this movie. So, you know, you you whenever we get to interview some of these people, they always have crazy stories. And 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 the thing that I've learned is like, yeah, sometimes the crazier the story is, the, the more true it is. You know, but this this is the spoiler is that in the final the final reel of the film, Calvin Lockhart's character commits suicide. Like that's how the movie ends. It's how it's supposed to end, but we never get there because no one's ever seen that, that reel. Well, I'm glad it's lost. Sincerely. As bad as the transfer that we're looking at, I do want to say that I love the photography in this movie. Like the palette and the, the, the sort of tone, like it starts off, it's so green in the early sort of comic book version, but, once we get to regular New York, it is beautiful and glowing right through to the to the moment where Coke Man in the nightclub is like, go get the fucking money. Because when he gets to California, it's all dusty and dry. And by the time he gets back to New York, my God, it's a bluish hellscape. So uh, I just want to say, having watched the movie a couple of times now over the weekend, like I gorgeously shot. Who I'm looking right now to see who the, the DP was on it. Is it anybody that we would know or... It is Alan Metzger, who has a lot of credits. He eventually became a director, and he just like kind of ran the whole circuit of all the law and orders and those kind of things. So that's the interesting thing. There's a lot of people that were in, oh, yeah, Metzger's got like it. He's got a crazy um, the equalizer, a lot of law and order. This is one of those movies that you would think there would be more people. You, you start digging deep and you go, oh, OK, yeah, the editor did this and the. My problem with the movie was always it ends so abruptly, you know, he's never going to get away with all the things that he's done. That was the thing. And and so, you know, Father Malone says he, he prefers this ending, but it's like there's there's this, you know, like it, it almost feels like, yeah, that that late 70s, mid to late 70s vibe. It feels like, yeah, there needs to be that sad ending, you know? Yeah, but that's precisely why I liked it so much. Like, you know, again, having seen it sandwiched in between a whole bunch of movies where people die horribly in the end, because it's the 70s and that's the way things need to end. The fact that we basically go back into the comic book movie of the beginning and then somehow it becomes fantastical when he starts interacting with her as himself. I know it's a fairy tale ending. I felt it was a, a nice aperitif, you know, <laughs> I can see where you come from, David, as far as like things don't add up at the end. At one point, Richard Lynch calls him or his goons i think maybe after so richard lynch is there he's the big bad behind the scenes he's the one that's giving money to coke man who's the charles mcgregor character and coke man's giving money to jason the calvin lockhart character so richard lynch is back there and he's just completely unreasonable 
super racist, homophobic, and just, but maybe he's gay and just projected. Like, there's all this weird stuff going on with this Richard Lynch character. I love him. And after Jason fucking stabs Richard Lynch in the neck with a fork, which is a great way to go, he gets a call from Lynch's goons and they're like, oh, we've got your woman. We've got Marlene Clark. And then at the end of the movie, like, she's fine. Jason goes, he he has his buddy who's keeping his really cool Baron Von Tripp's car, and he uses that guy, and uh, he uses a tow truck and defeats the bad guys in this quote-unquote explosion, like, one of the cheapest things ever, like, zoom in on the car, cut to an explosion of some sort. We don't see any you know, impact whatsoever. Okay. It was a superimposition and it was beautiful. And then we cut to Marlene Clark and she's fine and she's getting served like drinks and there's this guy in this bellboy outfit kind of thing. And I'm like, wait, are we on a movie shoot? Are we on a commercial? Cause she's a model and she keeps booking gigs and she's got a pretty good like life going on. And she keeps saying to Jason, Hey, we don't need this fancy place. We can live you know, a little less lavishly. I've got my money. We're good for a while. Like, you know, basically, but like he needs to give up his dream of this movie and he's not about to do it. But yeah, we've got her being served this drink. We've got all these people moving in time. Calvin Lockhart comes out and like everyone just stops and it's this weird tableau. And you're like, okay, is again, is this a commercial? Is he supposed to be here? Is this a movie? Is this real life? They end up hugging and then you just freeze frame roll credits so yeah like her even being around seems a little bit of a stretch and then this big happy ending feels it's almost a little bad lieutenant port of call new orleans where like all of a sudden everything is going right for him and you're like no i don't think so i don't think that he would have gotten away that easily it's a nice fantasy that he's gotten away from the mob that maybe he's back to making his movie but I keep expecting a moment rather than it going to freeze frame and credits. I keep waiting for the film to roll and then like, you know, somebody to be like making this film posthumously. Got it. And see, I, I, I always expect like the, the freeze frame and then you hear like a gunshot or something like that's the, <laughs> cause, cause the way he handles Richard Lynch is, is, um, I mean, it's brilliant. I love that. And, and, but again, it's like, he, he ain't getting away with this. In no world can you put a fork in the neck of a of a made man and not somehow be erased from the earth. I love when Lynch's head starts to fall and he just catches it so gently and then like pushes it back up. <laughs> this weird tense moment there, yeah. It's like, don't hit the table because we don't need to hear that. We don't need to alert your men that I just stabbed you. So let me put you back up here. And then after he leaves is when the when Lynch falls back down and hits the table. Yeah, I love that. That scene to me was so great. I love that because I remember watching going, what is he going to do? How is he going to get out of this? How is it? Oh my God. He just stabbed him in the throat with the, in the neck with a fork, you know, fingers crossed. Maybe again, maybe someday we'll, we'll be able to perfect world, you know, cause I still collect physical media. There'd be a DVD with, or excuse me, a Blu-ray with, with both versions, right? With, with both the, 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 the original VHS ending and then the, the the version we never got to see in theaters because the movie was never finished. And I think that that's, there, there's something really like it's, it's this sort of sad poetic quality to the fact that 
It's a movie about making movies that most people have never seen. It's in real life, real life example of, of what it can be like. This movie takes such a dramatic turn at one point when Coke Man, the Charles McGregor character, is in bed with his wife or girlfriend or whoever she is. I think it's his wife. And Richard Lynch and his two goons show up. And by the way, one of his goons has a fucking hook for a hand, which is just a wonderful touch. Can't beat that. Can't beat it. And I think one of the goons goes in and just starts raping Charles McGregor's wife. And you're like, what the fuck? And then I'm guessing that Richard Lynch has like a little knife or something. And he's just cutting a pen knife, a pen knife and he's cutting up Charles McGregor. Horrifying. And, oh, it is. It is so horrific. And I was just like, I wasn't expecting this turn of violence. I mean, yes, we're watching a quote unquote black exploitation film, though it doesn't feel like it fits into the tropes, except for this one scene where you're just like, oh my God, this violence is really out of nowhere and just so stark. And he ends up giving Charles McGregor a fucking heart attack. And I'm like, I've never seen this in a movie before where they torture this guy so bad that he ends up having a fucking heart attack and the guy at Lynch refuses to give him his pills. And I'm like, wow, I was not expecting this. And this, that, that just takes the movie up. Cause like, we already know that Lynch is not to be fucked around with. We know Charles McGregor is not to be fu fucked around with. Cause he's got those fucking dogs with him all the time that are just completely vicious. And then this happens and you're like, wow, Jason, you better run, man. Like get the hell out of there. McGregor, that you mentioned Blazing Saddles and he was in Superfly, a handful of other movies. But in a lot of ways, I feel like this is this is the movie that shows what he's capable of as an actor. He's almost comedic, but then he's really not comedic. He's he's serious. And he was he was an ex-con. He was he like he had he started actually acting while he was in prison. And then he got involved in almost like a scared straight program. He he wrote an autobiography which the title eludes me, of course, because that's that's how it goes. But um, there's a great film. I'm gonna I'll have to find it. It's like the first movie he ever did, which was like late '60s, early '70s, where he basically plays himself. He plays an ex-con, but he was in like Across 110th Street and Gordon's War. And this is, you know, there's I, I had this theory, which was always that you know uh, there, if black exploitation lasted long enough, everyone could have been a leading man. And and he's the guy I wish had been had had an opportunity to play a bigger part because I, I absolutely love him. As I said, I saw this movie before Superfly, just right before. And I had seen him before in Superfly and really liked his performance. But then having seen him in The Baron and how terrifying he could be when it came to Superfly and Ron O'Neill, this big spindly guy is sort of, you know, trying to rough him up. And, and I think like he could just tear him apart, man. He's a spectacular presence in the movie. Like I said, he didn't need those dogs. And and he goes from, as you said, Mike, early on, he's so sweet and lovable when, when we first meet him. And, and it, he flips it like a switch. But he never, he never feels one or two notes. There's like deep sensitivity in this performance of a character only known as the Coke Man. It's a staggering performance, actually. So the name of his book was Up From the Walking Dead, the Charles McGregor story. Came out in 78. This was, by the way, his last credited role. He was in this, and then he didn't do anything else except maybe the Scared Straight program. He ended up dying in 96. And so I don't know why 
he wasn't in more things. He would have been perfect in so many movies. The first thing I ever saw him in is can't find it listed. It's a short film and it was, can't remember what disc it was on. It was one of those like, oh, here's a bonus short film from the director of this movie you just watched. And it was this, um, it was a late sixties, maybe early seventies, this really trying to go for this sort of like a cross between John Cassavetes and, and, um, almost like the, like, like a neorealist vibe. It was really, and it was really low key. I'll, I'll dig around and I'll find it. But it was the thing that surprised me was like, oh my God, there's Charles McGregor. And, and it was, and it was about a bunch of ex-cons trying to matriculate back into the, the world. We've mentioned Richard Lynch's performance, but I, you've mentioned uh, the, the sort of overt homophobia. The character is slinging a hardcore at Charles McGregor. But I wanted to say it starts when they take him uptown to, to a restaurant and they sit him down. He starts by making fun of what he's wearing, but he couches it in, people are noticing us because of you. And all I could think is, you're dressed like Panama Jack, like the widest brim hat I've ever seen. One of your guys has a fucking hook for a hand on the table modeling jewelry. Find another tack. I think it is actually coded that he himself is like a closeted homosexual because later on we get the predatory homosexual character at the uh, the boutique where, where we meet Joan Blondell. And his character is dressed almost identically to Richard Lynch's character. I picked up on that as well. And I was just like, is this supposed to be a coincidence? But I guess not. Yeah. And yeah, he is so homophobic that it's just like, all right, why? Charles McGregor does not look like he is overly flamboyant. Even in that restaurant scene, he just has this kind of check jacket. This is the 1970s, ladies and gentlemen. This is... Not, you know, your Brooks Brothers button down suit type of, of world that we're in right now. And yeah, he just he just picks on him over and over and over. He's just like, let me invite this guy over here so I can just humiliate him constantly. And yeah, just all of the slurs that he's slinging. I'm just like, yeah, you got something else going on here, Richard. I think there was maybe one scene too many of him just. Uh, leveling Charles McGregor, you know, by the time they got to the the actual brutalization and murder of him, it was all too much. <laughs> it's uh, okay. So I did find it. I have to, cause I was feeling like I was a scatterbrained idiot. Um, there's, it's a, a short film from 1970 called max out. And it was directed by Robert, Robert Kagler. Um, and this was the film that this was, this was Charles McGregor's first film and every, and, and, uh, uh, Kayler, of course, directed Carney and Nobody's Perfect and a handful of other movies. But the, the significant thing about this short was everybody in it was an ex-con. And it was all about ex-cons trying to make a life for this, themselves in the real world. So, Yeah, and I can see why you wouldn't find that normally because he's listed as that's under his self-credit. So rather than a character he's playing. Yeah, interesting. I would love to see. I see that he was also on Dinah and the Mike Douglas show. I'd love to see those performances as well. Yeah, that when I saw that, it's like, what are you? What is he doing on the Mike Douglas show? So I have to. I'll also have to see if I can find a copy of of his book. Although it's, I do this all the time. Like find out about some old book that's out of print, and I'll track it down. Spend way too much money on it, and then never get around to reading it. Got a copy of Carol Speed's book somewhere laying around here. And then, and Max Julian actually wrote a weird collection of essays and poems that 
that he self-published that I, I managed to, when I met him back in the 90s, he gave me a copy of. And that's, that's one of the few ones that I've read. Um, and I got a call from somebody because Max passed away, what, a year or two ago. And we had a mutual friend and Max's widow sent him a copy of the book. But that's one of the things I'm fascinated with, like all the, the people who were like black exploitation adjacent who who wrote books. Harry Rhodes, who was in Detroit 9000, wrote two books. And there's a few others. And, and so I'm constantly trying to find these things and waste my money on them. But where's the book of the Baron? I know, the novelization. Gentlemen, I, I got to say, I thought I'm coming on Projection Booth and we're going to be talking this movie and they're going to fill me with the knowledge. I'm very disappointed in both of you. The whole bit about the film being all stuck in a, in a lab and getting picked up and going into public domain wasn't sexy enough for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, it's all post-production stuff. I, I need to know what was going on with Phil Fenty when he was writing this. Was, was this a polemic against his experience with Superfly? Like, and that occurred to me while I was watching it. I, I think it has to be. And that's why it's always interesting to me, too, because, you know, you see, well, Steve Rifle, who, who interviews a lot of people, has done a lot of stuff for Shock Cinema. I know at one point Steve had also talked to Philip Venti. Philip Venti is one of those guys that there's no interviews of with him anywhere. Absolutely amazing to me. Everybody deserves to have even, you know, some of the worst movies we've ever seen. They deserve to to have their history recorded and remembered a little bit better, even if it's, you know, garbage like like Velvet Smooth or something like that, or Renee, or Renee Martinez or a Michael Fink movie, even the worst of them. And something like this, where it's actually a good movie, a good, solid film that I enjoy every single time that I watch it, torture scene notwithstanding, I mean, I would love You're to not know. not meant to enjoy it, but I it's know. great. It is. It's great. And I love just, you know, like you mentioned, the the gay guy that's there at this salon where Mama Lou, the Joan Von Dell character is. And then there's this woman that's with him as well. And I'm trying to remember. I think she's just listed in the credits as Wasp Ail Strickland, right? I mean, Jason's not a nice guy. The way that he tells Marlene Clark at one point, he's like, I want to be rich more than I want to be your husband. And the way that he latches on to this Wasp lady and is trying to get money out of her and then like uses his skills and it's a backgammon that they're playing and he makes like 40 grand playing this game and then he gives that to either to Copeman or to Lynch and and, and just like okay great well we need another $300,000 so he basically sells himself to Mama Lou for $300,000 and then Lynch is just like yeah, that's a good start. I mean, he gives them the money way too fast, I think. And yeah. <laughs> he's just like, oh, well, you're an easy mark. Okay, well, $300,000 is not the total. It, I need another $300,000. It just puts them in this impossible place. And that's when Lockhart stabs him with the fork. And it's not a malicious stabbing. It's not like, you know, Mikey coming out of the bathroom and shooting, you know, the Salazzo and the and the captain or anything. It's just like putting a fork up to his neck and then next thing you know, it's like, whoops, that went too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Calvin Lockhart, the only thing I had known him from before seeing this movie was the Reverend Deco Malley and Cotton Comes to Harlem. He seemed pretty slippery in that. So when this movie came on, I was like, oh, okay, this is more of a challenging film where we have to not necessarily love our protagonist. There's a movie he did in seventy two called Melinda which is his best performance period as an actor. And it's one of the few, the Baron, 
and Melinda and and um the werewolf movie that he did for I think it was Amicus. Uh, I I was it The Beast Must Die? Yes, that's it. The Beast Must Die. And I think Marlene Clark's in that as well. If but Melinda is like is is one of his best performances and he, and he's not a particularly likable guy in that either, right? The rumors are that he was incredibly difficult. He had a he had a really big ego. He was in the late 60s, he was supposed to be the next Sidney Poitier and then it just never happened for him. And and I know from talking to um there's a, a guy that I know, Dr. Roland Jefferson who made some ultra low budget movies in the in the 70s and early 80s. And he was friends with Lockhart and, and he was like, oh yeah, no, he's just, he's an asshole. He's just difficult to deal with. You know, everybody loves him, but everybody hates him at the same time. I had talked to him on the phone once hoping to set up an interview with him and it had never happened, but he was just the epitome of a, of a grumpy old man. Only he was probably only in his fifties at the time. Right. You know, so if neither of you have seen Melinda, definitely check that one out. That is a great movie. Yeah, he always just brings such presence to his roles. Even when he shows up for like, what, five minutes in Wild at Heart, like just that image of him holding that quarter over his eye and or 50 cent piece or him with those crazy fake dreads and Predator 2 when he's King Willie. I mean, the oh guy my God, just brought King it. Willie. And Calvin Lockhart. Yeah, and the original Biggie Smalls for Let's Do It Again. You know? Let's do it again, yeah. And uh, what he was silky slim, I think, from Uptown Saturday Night. I'm surprised he didn't play the same role in both movies. I just rewatched both of those movies within the last couple years, and they're so hard to watch now because because of Cosby, right? I mean, that's just let's just say it for what it is. But uh, but both of those movies are are also great to watch because of like Calvin Lockhart and the supporting cast that's in. You know, like John Amos is in one of them. And even though I can't stand Jimmy Walker, he's in one of them. There's all sorts of interesting people in it. And, and then, of course, Cotton comes to Harlem as well, too, where he plays that, the, that skeezy preacher, the evangelist. So, and the guy, he was so handsome. This guy, I mean, not to sound like Richard Lynch or something, but he was just incredibly handsome. And so he just pulls off leading man like nobody's business it feels like he was meant to be a leading man and most of the movies that we're talking about he's just kind of off to the side or like a very small role but it's just like man this guy's got some real freaking charisma to him and yeah you're right it's like we don't we don't like jason but we're there and we're rooting for him a lot of it i think is because we're all frustrated artists or frustrated to different levels i would say but I mean, this guy, you know, it's like he's so single a purpose and vision. He's just like, I got to do whatever I can to make that movie. And I'm like, yeah, he's like the Ed Wood of, of, of black action films. Borrowing from drug dealers, selling his body, like, and it's all for like a kid's movie. With Lockhart, my thing is I felt even a, I knew Calvin Lockhart was when I was a kid growing up just because I would see him in things like Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine. And, and as I got older, I felt like the greatest missed opportunity in, in 70s cinema history was that instead of getting Roger Moore to play James Bond and Live and Let Die, it should have been Calvin Lockhart. And, and, and because, because Live and Let Die is a black exploitation movie, like through and through. Oh, but certainly. Yeah. Uh, also the best one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, but I always felt like, 
because especially in the beast must die, you get a sense of like, that's the closest he comes to being a true like action hero. You know, he's the werewolf hunter, big game hunter. But I, I, in some alternative universe, there's a version of live and let die where Calvin Lockhart took over as James Bond and probably only played the part for two films because then they would have gotten rid of him. And, and, you know, black exploitation was over by the time, definitely over by the time the spy who loved me came out, but you know, we might've gotten the man with the golden gun. I think you, you would have been good up against Christopher Lee in, in the man with the golden gun, especially because the older I get, the more every movie that, that Roger Moore made, and especially those first two where he goes up against these villains that are just like, yeah, dude, you can't handle this. Ultra camp too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I shouldn't I shouldn't talk bad about Roger Moore. But isn't there another guy with a fucking hook for a hand in Live and Let Die as well? Oh, there yeah. is. Yeah, uh, Julius Harris plays Teehee, I think is the character's name. And and he's another great character. That's, you know, I'm just sort of addicted to these great character actors like Julius Harris and Charles McGregor. And and I'm surprised Charles McGregor isn't in Live and Let Die, to be honest with you. it's There's a couple parts I could have seen him easily playing all of those character actors. And, and the sad part is with a lot of character actors in general, it's like, yeah, most people don't know who they are, know what they did. And then we obsess over them, but a lot of them are gone now. So you can't even, you know, tell their full stories. Uh, and, and then, and then occasionally they'll pop up. Like you're watching old episodes of like murder. She wrote or Matlock. And suddenly it's like, Oh my God, G2 Kabuka's in murder. She wrote, how did this happen? Joan Blondell was making some interesting choices by the 1970s, by the way. But I should say, Joan Blondell is my favorite actress sort of across the board. I just adore her, uh, particularly all the pre-code, through the code, through the 40s, through the 50s. Oh, my God. No one ever like her. But just staggered to see her in this. That's a, a backstage story. I want to know how she got involved and why. And uh, she's great. <laughs> people popping up like i also recently saw her on an episode of starsky and hutch and i went jesus christ what are you doing john kind of reminded me of like shelly winters when she was slumming and in, in stuff and you know poseidon adventure and like all the exploitation type films in the 70s you know what was it uh cleopatra jones and a few others i mean she's just amazing cleopatra jones just chewing on that scenery and but i was so surprised that joan blondell wasn't doing that same yeah, Shelley Winters thing. She's very reserved in the bear. Very, and she and she's usually brassy and in in your face. So uh, it's actually a pretty restrained performance from Joan. Yeah, yeah, you're right. She was making some interesting stuff. I remember she was in what Wonton Ton, the dog that saved Hollywood, if memory serves. I think my next quest is I'm going to be going through all of the credits and adding everybody into this because there are so many people that are in those credits that aren't on IMDb. And then poor Beverly Johnson, whoever typed in her credit, couldn't even spell receptionist correctly. So let's fix that one. Everything surrounding the Baron is a shambles. We we need to right these wrongs, sirs. God, I wish this one was coming out on blue any day because I would love to really talk about how beautiful it looks. Because I have a feeling that Alan Metzger, who we're going to hear from in a few minutes, did his due diligence. And this thing looks a lot better than what we're ending up seeing so yeah let's go ahead we're going to take a break and we're going to be back with an interview with alan metzger the dp of the baron right after these brief messages 
Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jules. And we do in filmographies. We've compiled a list of actors. We draw a name at random and tackle their entire acting filmography from start to finish. Or at least as much of it that still exists and hasn't been lost to time. Jason loves actor Billy Crudup in films like Jesus' Son or Almost Famous. But will he love Billy in movies like Monument Avenue or World Traveler? No, they're not good. And Jules loves actor Rada Mitchell in films like High Art and Pitch Black. But will he love Rada? in movies like When Strangers Appear or Love and Other Catastrophes. You'll just have to tune in to find out. Some of the names that pop up might surprise you. Some of the films as well. So join us every Saturday on the podcast app of your choice or via YouTube as We Do in Filmographies. Hello everyone, this is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash projection booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from cinematographer Alan Metzger. Well, how did you even begin to be a cinematographer? Because you started right off with Jules Descent, as far as I know, with your, your first feature. I went to Wesleyan University. I got out in 68. I shot news for a while for NBC, and I was in Syracuse, based at the WSYR, I think it was. And that was great, but I wanted to do theatrical. And I came to New York, and I didn't know anybody, and... The only thing I had that I was thinking about was that I had done, when we were doing projects in college, we would all crew for each other and so on. And when I was the cinematographer, the pictures were really great. And I had really had no experience other than that. But I thought maybe that's a possibility. Came to New York and my father, who was iffy on the whole proposition of this, of course, was a guy who was, he went to Harvard and he was an ad. So if we went to Harvard, especially back in those days, you read the New York Times and you read it from cover to cover. You read the Herald Tribune too, but the Times was, that was the lingua franca of, and he would read it cover to cover. And so he sees one Sunday that a guy named, I think his name was Peter Funk, was marrying somebody in the society pages. And he mentioned two things. He was a producer of industrial films, and he had gone to Wesleyan. So my father said, why don't you go visit his office? Just tell you at the Wesleyan, ask him for a job. And he gave me a job as a PA. They were doing some sort of industrial. And I became friends. We, I was sidling up to the, the assistant camera guy whenever I could. And turns out, ultimately, like, how'd you get into this game? He had married the business agent's daughter. That's how he got it. That guy's name was Sid Zucker. And so knowing him, I got 
the big assistant camera guy to call his father-in-law. And I got an appointment at the local, at the union. And that was local 644. And that was really the only game in town. And I went there and the business agent met me and he said, you have two shots if you want to do this. One is you're a legacy, which I was not. And I think I was married to him at the time. I couldn't really get sure and look for somebody union member. There are times when it gets so busy in town that we have to add additional members. And where we go is we go to one of the equipment houses. They all have, all the film equipment is leased. And there were two or three big equipment houses in New York at the time. And sometimes then, so we'll look there to take somebody in the union because they know the cameras very well. So I went around and I found the guy. I found one, my last shot was a place called General Camera. I walked in and I went to the equipment thing. I said, I'm looking for a job. And the guy looked me up and down. He said, I'm not hiring you. And I said, why? He said, because what's going to happen is you're going to work here for six months. You're going to learn about cameras. They're going to leave and join the union. (laughs) So I must have looked. This is my last shot. So he said, Walter Drucker was his name. So he said, let me show you around. As he's showing me around, he gets a phone call. One of the guys who was working in the camera, this was on a Monday, who was working in the camera department, broke his arm playing softball on Sunday. So I said, Walter, just hire me for four weeks, whatever it is, and then I'll leave. That'll be great. And I meant it. Well, so, you know, I was so gung-ho about all of this at the end of the four weeks. He kept us, but he kept me on. And then the other guy left. And then I ran the camera room. And from that, I became a known person in the industry and got, became assistant cameraman. So somebody called me because it was for television commercials. And the guy was the direct, director cameraman. It was so crazy. He fired everybody. And so he needed new blood. So he called me up. And he did. And at five o'clock in the morning, and he said, are you ready to make your debut? And so I got dressed and I worked for a guy. His name was Mel Sikulski. He was a famous still photographer and did a lot of TV spots, just died recently. From there, I really learned lighting and composition. That was, he was great at all that. He was all instinctual. He had no training. And so I learned that. And then, so I became a cinematographer and doing like low budget pictures. Dastin's thing was one which was fat. What a great experience that was. He was really something. And by incidentally, by the way, he was from Middletown, Connecticut, where Wesleyan was. I didn't know it till I met him. But I think the first line of Never on Sunday is Homer Thrace was his name. What's Homer, a man like Homer Thrace from Middletown, Connecticut doing in this gorge in the Ionian Sea or wherever the alley was? It's not a boat, I think. Anyway, so that's how I started. And then... Yeah, I made a lot of the low-budget movies I really enjoy, but you start doing bigger and bigger things, and I did, and then so I went from non-union to union, and when you do that low-budget stuff, you're traveling all over. You're never home, and saying you're living in some sleazebag motel in the middle of nowhere for six, eight weeks, whatever it is, and it's a great artistic experience, but it's not very good for home life. And so I determined to stay at home and that changed the nature of my business. And so then I began to do more commercial. I would do commercial, shoot commercials. 
and also then began to do episodic television and do TV movies. And, but I think in the, it was that I was in the union when I did Baron Wolfgang von Trips. So that was a little later. I've somehow or other, I got involved with some of the people that were in the, the black exploitation world, which was great. It was, <laughs> I can't emphasize enough. I did Shining Star, which was called That's the Way of the World, Sig Shore directed. That's how I met Phil. And then I did Barry Wolfgang's Von Trips with Phil, Philip. And um, I was thinking, I think there was another one, Al's fan. He was a movie maker of some kind or other. And I did something with him. I couldn't quite place it. I was thinking about it. And it, as I say, a lot of these old memories are coming back. But the, that whole, but the shining star is shining star. Now that's the way the world was just a great experience. All the actors were just fantastic. And we had just the greatest time. People were really happy to be there. We're really trying to do their best, even though, of course, there was a certain amount of exploitation going on and this larger than life out there thing that they, was an exaggeration of what I would say people, black people who were living their lives, <laughs> weren't all walking around like those guys. They all bring a smile to my face. They all were just so much fun. And you also did uh, Andy Warhol's Bad as well. Andy Warhol's Bad. Jed Johnson was the director. And they may have been romantically involved at the time, I forget, but they had a, rela they had a relationship of some kind. And so Jed, I... Rumor had it that Jed was made director of Bad because Andy was pissed off at Morrissey. And so he was going to show him that any idiot, pardon me, expression, Jed was a great guy and very smart, but he didn't really want to be director. <laughs> but Andy, this was Andy saying, fuck you to Mar Paul Morrissey, I think. That was the rumor. So any, anyway, so Jed and so Jed would, and there were that whole group of people were really fun and fun to be around. The whole gang, the whole, and the world of it was great. It was really very exciting and exciting to be there. Anyway, I remember I had met Andy a few times, and I mean, he was a, as far as I was concerned, he was a great American icon. He was really famous. And so it wasn't my way to just, hi, Andy, how you doing? I was introduced to him and stuff, but. I would speak when spoken to him, and he was a very quiet guy, and he was, and he, he would never kind of look in the eye, he would somebody else, and they would tell you what he said. It was like then, very, very quiet, or he didn't have much to say, and I assumed that, okay, this is a shy guy, and also that he speaks through his brush, that's the guy was prolific at communicating and just wasn't the <laughs> spoken word. He would come and he would see dailies every night. We would all watch dailies every night. and But he never really said a word, good, bad, or indifferent. The script had been written by Jed and also by a woman named Pat Hackett, who was part of the factory group. And she was having spats with Ed. They would, it was like a family. So they would, one would be mad at one, one would be mad at the other, this, that. 
anyway, he was like a little pissed at Pat for something. I have no idea what. And Pat had decided that she was going to do this long scene where she was going to be in it and talking to a friend, I forget, another actor, an actress, and had written like a five-page scene of the two of them talking at the table. And Andy didn't like it. And she was insistent, this is great, it's really, it's, it's just such fun or whatever she said, and she's going to make the move. And so reluctantly, we're doing it. So we set up to do it, and it's horrible. It's Pat Stakes, the other woman's stunt. The dialogue is, if you were sitting next to these people at a restaurant listening to this, you would turn the other way or move your table. It was just blah, blah, blah. Anyway, sometimes what you can do in those situations is do multiple cameras so you get a bunch more angles and then let the editor try to piece together something that is in a real snooze in the middle of the movie. So we have now four or five cameras. We got everything out, and we're shooting this scene. Okay, finally it's over, and everybody heaves a huge sigh of relief. Now Daly's. So Daly's, it still was no, it was horrible, but now you're seeing it for now. Because you're guessing, like, you're seeing five cameras of horrible acting and banal dialogue. So the lights come up, and Andy, a man who has not said one word in six weeks, stands up and turns to Pat Hackett and Jed Johnson and goes up one side of their back and down the other. He was nonstop, incredibly articulate, and destroyed them in front of everybody. We would have 30 people watching the dailies. And... In front of it, and then stormed out. So that was my, that was a great time. So, what do you remember of Philip Venti? What was he like to work with? I like Philip a lot. Philip got to me through Sig. And Sig, I think Sig had gone to, he, Sig was always a guy, I guess, that with all, all these black exploitation producers, they were, uh, they were really living hand to mouth. They were financing this stuff themselves. The story in Barron is not really out of the question. I, these guys were trying to get loans of that size, and they were going to finance the whole movie themselves and then sell it, get a negative pickup deal, like what he talks about in the show. He was a real fly-by-night cowboy type of operation. Sig had made money on Superfly. He was become famous or, and also had made dough. And he bought himself a big house in Connecticut. And so she then decided, why pay money for a director? I mean, I am certain, <laughs> Mike, that they had a, that's why he chose to direct it. Any idiot could direct this stuff. It happens by itself, right? You get a script, the actors do what they do, everybody does what they do, boom, you're God. Sig never knew what we were shooting in the day and never had the script. <laughs> He was. He would if they got this tough part of the scene. He would say, "I got to make a phone call." He read the set. So, so anyway, but he and Phil was his right hand man, and I think Phil came from advertising, but I'm not sure. And he was Phil was doing a lot of writing, and was at the very kind of he was like a mild guy. I thought that in a world of criminals 
He was, I'm not talking about the world they're depicting. I'm talking about the actual, how these guys were playing fast and loose with everything. Phil was a gentleman. And it was very important to Phil that people were, the crew was treated decently. And he was, I think he did everything he could to make that possible. In an environment, Sigwood, I was in the airport with Sig one time. And he, he had two kids. He had a wife and two kids. And they were living in Connecticut. And they were, you know, like upper middle class Connecticut people. They, they weren't part of this hustle bustle that, that, that Sig made his living in. And so we were all going as, and I met them. I knew them. I, I was invited to their house a couple of times. So uh, we're in the airport. I'm with his family and him. And we're in the airport going from New York to LA or LA to New York, something. And he has to buy something and he, he does his pie. He was chronically, he never carried any money. <laughs> he turns to his daughter, who was like 20. He says, Lindsay, can you loan me 20 bucks? I'll give it back to you in a second. He goes, he comes back. He doesn't give her anything. She said, you're trying to cheat your own daughter. That added 20 bucks. That was sick. So Phil in that world was of a different order. And I also think, Mike, that Phil, for Phil, there was an artistic component to all of this. I think that, I think that had Phil, I lost track of him after Baron Wolf gave on trips. Had he continued making movies, he would have done more and more serious stuff. The art component was more important to him, I felt than the commercial component. So that was nice in that world. So Sig Shore was a guy during World War II. He was one of those guys who was like a bombardier and the plane went down. So he was extremely claustrophobic. As a matter of fact, he had an office. I don't know. It wasn't the Brill building. It was one of those old famous buildings. And it was like on the third floor because he wouldn't take elevator. In Manhattan, this guy wouldn't take elevator. Deathly afraid of it all. So anyway, so he and I are going out to Los Angeles, just he and I, to, I forget what, to scout locations or whatever the hell. Anyway, he gives, he says, you want to fly together? And I go, yeah, sure. Figuring that I'm the cheapest man in America, he's going to fly himself first class, so I have to fly me first class. Even though it's contractually asked to do it, I know he's going to try to cheat me on this. He says, oh, okay. He says, I'll get the tickets. He gives me my ticket a day or so later. Coach. I go, motherfucker. So we go to the airport. And I know he's claustrophobic. We go to the airport. We put the tickets in. And now he's getting more and more nervous. He's got to actually get on the plane. And this is a time when, you know, they had bombed planes and shit like that. We check baggage. We go to get on the plane. And he gets into the plane, and it's a completely full flight. And we're flying coach. We get one step, and he says, I'm not doing planes. And he runs off the plane. And, of course, I follow him. And <laughs> we get out. And they're now freaking out because you weren't allowed to check bags and not fly on the plane because of bomb threats. So they're, now they're delaying the plane, and the guy, he's not Okay, we finally get that all strained out. What are we going to do? And this is we're flying America. 
so there's a flight. The next flight is United, which is where JFK, all the way across the infield. So, and there's no taxis, nothing. So I don't know if you've ever walked across the infield. One of these gigantic, it's, it's like jungle in there. So people don't go in there. We walk across, Sig and I. We're dressed up. We walk the bus. We get to United and we have first class tickets. Boom, we go to California. Now, two weeks later, we're leaving. We're going back. He goes, you want to fly together? I go, okay. He goes, he goes, okay, this time I'll make the reservations. <laughs> like I had fucked up. <laughs> he does the same thing, Mike. And we get off the plane. We get off the plane and have to get on another plane. He did the identical thing. That was the cure. That's what it took to be a black exploitation producer. <laughs> What do you remember of shooting the film? Because I have to tell you that it looks fantastic. And I really feel that there, are, I mean, the VHS is what it is, but like what I can make out of the movie looks wonderful. And that I can really tell there's a different color palette that you're using, depending on if he's in New York or if he's in California or what area of the film he's in. Like there's a dance scene that's got this kind of gold filter on it. I mean, it looks really good. It's thought that color should be a major component. At the time, the African-American experience was one that color was a more important component, I felt. As a cinematographer, I felt that then that was part of the Af African-American culture and respect. And so I really wanted to emphasize, without being calling attention to it in such a graphic way, that it would overtake kind of the reality of the film or dominate point blank where the use of co color I thought was just phenomenal. And so I, and that was a city movie as well. Not that I use the same colors for the same thing, but I tried to integrate that into the movie. And I thought that, that was pretty successful. I hadn't seen that movie for 40 years or however long it was. And I looked at it in anticipation of this interview. I was pleasantly surprised too. I thought it looked great. <laughs> I thought the compositions were interesting. I thought that whatever that world was, it was someone's fantasy. Right? <laughs> but <laughs> whatever that world was, I thought that you had, you didn't feel claustrophobic. There was an air about, an airiness about it. I think it was in character with Calvin Lockhart, who was a terrific guy. Terrific, a very nice guy, talented guy. There were some scenes that were omitted, and I couldn't tell you what they, I was trying to think of what they were about. One was a basketball scene where he was playing one-on-one. -on -one. I think he goes to see an old pal in, in Brooklyn or something, and he goes to play a a basketball court, like a, a sandlot basketball court, between a couple of buildings and stuff. He plays one-on-one -on -one with the guy as they're talking about whatever they're talking about. Get selling the movie or getting money or getting the, the bad guys off his hips. I don't know, whatever. They're. That scene was omitted. And we had done that scene maybe a week later that a week after we did there was a dance not the dance number at the end but the one where they're like ballroom dancing kind of thing and we had done that and calvin lockhart 
couldn't dance a step. If you watch it closely, <laughs> he stinks. He's like doing more of this kind of stuff than actually moving. And then we do the basketball scene, and he he's a, I think he's a Caribbean guy. He couldn't play basketball to save his ass. He stuck at that. <laughs> he's hurtless. <laughs> and he said, this is the one picture where you get a black man, but he didn't say that word. He, he said, you get you get a black man who can't play basketball or dance. That's, but that was, he was a very good actor. He was proud of it. He was proud of it. Very handsome. I think the, I think the other thing was, I thought what thing about him was the one reason that was given why he wasn't a bigger star because he was a pretty good actor. He's handsome, very handsome. Was that he was so darkly complected, he had to be separately lit, and that's harder and more time consuming than if somebody's lighter complected, and that stopped him from getting some jobs and impeded his career. That was going to be one of my questions. I mean, Charles McGregor is very dark skinned as well as is Marlene Clark. I mean, was that a challenge for you as the DP to light these folks? Yeah. Charlie McGregor had, he had a lot of oil close to the top of his skin. So there was always, the light would be moving around that. Calvin Lockhart didn't have that. He would, he wore, so the light would be absorbed more. So it was more that. You really want to delineate the features of these guys. I mean, we want to be able to see them clearly. And, but so we would have to isolate Calvin a lot and then light him separately. And then hey, these guys are wearing white suits. <laughs> they weren't that helpful. But Charlie McGregor was a great guy to work with. Very funny. One of the scenes in the scene where they shoot the dogs, right? So the idea was that. There, there was going to be a shot where Charlie is saying hello and the door is open and in it flies in through the door flies in one of the dead dogs and he sees it lands like right at his feet. How does that, how do you get that? How do you do that? So the first thing that prop guys are calling all of the dog pounds in the city saying, do you have any dead Dober? Over his finger, and none did. So he gets a stuffed Doberman pincher. But the thing is stuffed like in the standing position, and this is supposed to, if he, if they just throw it through, it's like you're not seeing anything. You're just seeing something black get thrown through. Just the, the idea was to do this in slow motion, so you see this door. So the door comes through in slow motion, but its feet are straight out because it <laughs> that didn't work, and we're in the midst of trying to think of another solution, and in comes two guys who are investigators for the ASPCA, who have been alerted that we're looking for dead dogs. <laughs> I think we called the quits that day. I think that may have been the end of it. <laughs> and we don't see it. I think he goes into the hall, doesn't he? Something like that. The cast, it is so stacked, and that you've even got Joan Blondell in there, the, this Hollywood royalty. I thought she was pretty good, too. I thought she did a good job. Joan Blondell was no spray chicken. And I don't know if she really did much work at all at that time. Anyway, there were agents 
who would handle, they probably still do, people like Joan Blondell, they'll have like 10 of them. So maybe like Phil wanted, I don't know who wanted Charlie, not Charlie McGregor had an active career at that time, but wasn't that, who was the guy was the cowboy, the uh, producer, Raymond St. John. So Raymond St. John's agent says, how about Joe Blondell? Do you have a part for her? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and that's what, then that's how you end up with these cast. They're really pretty interesting. And Joan did a great job, I thought. The stabbing of the fork in the neck went on and on. They had a prosthetic neck made that was a copy <laughs> of Richard's. And I forget how they started. They were going to put the prosthetic on him. And then he refused to have somebody like stab him in the neck. What's <laughs> up? He's <was> scared. <laughs> but. Yes, that was a big deal. Yeah, there were a lot. We had a lot of adventures. <laughs> yeah, because at one part, he tells Marlene Clark, I'd rather be rich than be married to you. And then he ends up going off with, yeah, Gail Strickland. And then, yeah, she just kind of disappears. Did not have a happy ending. I thought he may have killed himself in a car wreck <coughs> with that red car. I, but I'm not sure, Mike. But I think that's true. There was also a larger story with Gail Strickland, who is like, what's she doing in that movie? Now, I, she had a lot of scenes. I guess she was a love interest of his. I think she was an active love interest of his. I think that they were have, they could have been having an affair or something. There was another scene, I think, they were in a, in a handsome cab by Central Park. But, in the, you know, why? Why? You know, what was their relationship, but you never really know. But I think there was a lot more footage. And then, as I say, the basketball scene, that one was out. I think it was about asking for money. I must say, there are some, like, loose dents and stuff. But I felt that the film had cohesion. The story, whatever it was, <laughs> worked pretty well, which is not not always the case. I totally agree. It doesn't feel like there's missing stuff. That's right. And the idea that that he interrupts that commercial and every all of that is going on, I think, is an ending. No one would say that's not really an ending of a movie. It was. But as I recall it, it had a tragic it had a tragic ending. I'm as I say, Phil was interested in the art of film. And I think that all of the over-the-top stuff was what he felt could make it viable in the market, not what he wanted to do. So I think that the idea that the, that the guy would come to a tragic end was something that he was interested in doing. I'm so curious, how did you make that transition from being a cinematographer to, to being a director? Because once you did that, it doesn't feel like you looked back at all. You just went right onto that directing train. I was the DP of the Equalizer. It was a universal show. And that was the original. Edward Woodward was the Equalizer. Him. And CBS show, Universal show. Jim McAdams was the executive producer from Universal. And it was, it was my show. I was there at the inception of the show. And, and I, maybe this was the, we were in the, our second year and he was getting a lot of accolades for the look of it. And it was also 
It was a very early show shot in Manhattan, not forever, but it, uh, what happened was that there was an incident in shooting in Manhattan on a big, the Mr. Budwaker, or do you remember that movie? The movie we were trying to remember is Mr. Budwing, B-U-D-D-W-I-N-G, from 1966. The studios didn't want to come to New York to shoot anyway. It was much too expensive. And there was a big, I think it was Warner Brothers, they were shooting a big movie, and there was fighting. All of a sudden, a big fight broke out, and they all vowed, that's it, no more New York. Until they brought in the Equalizer. There was no real New York shooting for maybe 10, 15 years. I think they do a Kojak in New York, but I think that was way before. And they what sorry, they brought stuff to the East. They did Miami Vice. That was very successful, whatever year that was. And then they did the and I think that was the universal show as well. And then they decided to make the East Coast operation happen. And so they they did the equalizer. And and Jim had been the producer of Kojak. He'd been around a long time. They hired him, and he hired me. And I was like there at the New York guy. And so I felt the proprietary impulse towards the Equalizer. We also were doing great things, bringing the stuff back into New York City. And so that it was a very exciting time. So we're doing that two years. And it's exhausting to do episodic, but it was very rewarding. It was a new experience. And so anyway, at the same time, they thought that what they would do is bring back a series of Kojak movies, like two-hour TV movies. And each one would be separate. It wasn't an ongoing show, but Kojak was the main character. And they had, they wanted them to have some cachet. What happens is Jim wants to hire me to shoot the Equalizer. The first year, I don't want to do it. My career is going, my, I'm getting movie offers. At the time, television was really the low man on the totem pole. Nobody wanted to do it, including me. And why should I tie myself into that when things are looking up? And Jim says to me, Listen, I feel you would be really an important piece of this. And so you could make your own deal. And I go to my aunt, so that sounded good. And my wife is saying, Look, it's not that it was, I think it was only for seven or eight episodes, but I think they had for half or 11, you know, that half since I think 11 episodes. And what's the big deal? Sign on for that. You'll be at home, blah, blah. So I go to my agent. And I said, and I was making a lot of money doing most of the commercials. And I said to him, I explained to him the situation. I liked Jim. I thought it was a good relationship we had. And he said, name your own price. I think I was making, this is a long time ago, 2,500 bucks a day shooting commercials. So I figured, what about 3,500 bucks a day doing this? Now it was like they weren't paying directly stuff. That was so far from the charts that still my agent said, look, it, that your concept of your own deal and theirs is very different. And <laughs> he said, however, did you ever have a yen to direct? And I said, when I was in college, I did. That was like 20 years ago. 
He said, because they will make a deal where they'll give you a directing assignment in exchange for you doing what they want you to do, be it a DP or whatever. However, if you really don't care whether you do this or not, I'll ask for two because no one ever gets two. If you have two, if you have one, people say, okay, they give them a shot. If two, they, that means that they really thought you had something. And he said, but pro- they'll probably turn it down. Of course, since I didn't care, they gave it to me. <laughs> and that's how I became a director is the truth of it. And then what happened was, so now I'm doing the equalizer. And I go from shooting to directing on the equalizer and didn't want to do it. I did one and it was a terrible experience for me. I had thought when you're the DP, you're beloved by all. The actors want to be your friends because you'll make them look good. You hire the crew. The producer's afraid of you because you can slow things down. It's all, and the director, the colleague of the director without the responsibility of the director, as I learned. So that was a great job. And now you go to become a director, and it's like everybody is hitting on you. You are really barraged. Anybody has a problem, tell the director, then you can walk away. <laughs> now it's his problem. And he was you know, come to him. I had absolutely unexpected. So I wanted to leave after one. And Jim said, why don't you just wait a while? Give it a, we'll make the last one in the series. And I went back to the, I did a couple of days of shooting in between. I was so disassociated from the shooting almost from the beginning. It was, uh, the, the directing is a fascinating, you were really uh, a lot. <laughs> You're thinking at a high level and focus. That's the, the, key, the key to it really is focus. You maintain a focus for 12 hours straight, which is, uh, I couldn't do it now. <laughs> but it's a phenomenal, and it's a phenomenal experience. And it's wonderful. It's challenging. You get to bring things from your own life right into it and so on. Humbling. You can see how humble I am. But it really is. It, the whole thing about it was great. And so after having done it, even though I felt I wanted to kill myself while I was doing it, the shooting didn't have the same trouble. And so then I did the last one, and my only goal was to preserve my sanity. And so it went much better. I had I didn't have these ideas that I was going to be the next Orson Welles immediate. I give it a couple of years. So anyway, that's how I started directing. And that's how I continued to do it. And then I'm working at directing every other episode on Equalizer during the second year. They're doing this Kojak series, which was two hour and very high profile and very expensive. And the director falls like 10 days behind in the first 12 days, he was not able to maintain the pace at all. And so Jim comes on the set. I'm directing a scene. I think it was in a prison and just stands in the back of the room and looks like death warmed over. And I, after a while, I'm on a, I'm on a crane on this. After a while, I look over and I see him there and he sees me and he steps forward and he says, whenever you have a minute, this is the executive producer. 
I said, okay, let's take a break, boys. And he wanted me to take over the other show and leave my, and with no prep, I had the weekend to prep and continue this high profile thing. And I did it. And after that, a lot of great things came. And it was successful. But it, I didn't bankrupt in the first picture. So. And it was nice. And it was good. It was a good show. And Kelly was a lot of fun. And uh, it was uh, was very good. He was a good actor, Kelly. When he would focus, a lot of his, uh, he he was much more interested in, in football and stuff like that. <laughs> Love, yeah, but love to give. Love to He would also, they would get a big limo for him, of course. And the limo would pull up and he would bring his entire family with him. There were like 10 of them. They would all pile out of the back. He would be sitting in the front with the driver. He'd come out of the front. He was a very nice guy. He's a very sweet guy. His brother was too. They were, they were great. What are you up to these days? So what I did was about maybe 20 years ago, something like that, after 9-11, or right before 9 I decided that what I would do was I was getting, I'd been there, done that with this stuff. And I had a bunch of kids. I have a bunch of kids. And I decided that what I would do was, and everybody was complaining about education, and I think Columbine was around that time. And I decided what I would do would be to go back to college and get a teaching degree and become a high school social studies teacher. And and I was going to become a high school social studies teacher because that was my major in college. Then you have to get your transcript when you're when you're going into co- in, into another institution. And so I got my transcript and I opened it up and lo and behold, I was an English man. So I became an English teacher. Anyway, so I did all of that. And then I taught in, I was in California and I taught in Santa Monica. I taught in LAUSD down Southgate and also in Santa Monica, which is its own, I think it's an independent school system there. Good size. Anyway. So I'm there, and then and my whole life was in New York, however, so I decided I would come to New York. And especially after 9-11, it was traumatic for me to be in California when my kids and in rural. And so I came back to New York, and I was going to teach high school in New York, and I had a very interesting experience. I, one of my old neighbors was a woman who was asked to, this is a great story, but from another, for another meeting here. <laughs> but anyway, she was running a thing called City Hall Academy, which was Mike Bloomberg had decided to create a special curriculum for New York City, and she was in, involved in getting it together. And she asked me if I wanted to join that group, and so it was a fabulous experience. And I did that. And then I, through that, I met some people who wanted to start. And this is all public schools. This is not private or charter. They wanted to start a small CTE's career in tech ed. It's a cross between the old, like, technical schools and college preps. 
And they wanted to start that for film and television technicians. So they asked me if I wanted to write the curriculum for that. And this is in 2007 and 2008. And since I thought this would never happen, I agreed. And we opened up in, in September of 2008. We, it's still going strong now, 566 students. We've graduated about 1,500 so far. They're all over the business. It was the culmination of my whole life, I think. And now I'm winding out of that. <laughs> and I would spend 60 hours a week in, in, in the high school. It's in a gorgeous building on Hunter's Point in the right out in Queens. And, you know, it's my give back. So, Mr. Metzger, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Same here. Thank you. Thank you for considering me. And any time. All right, up next, surprise, here is an interview with Philip Fenty, the filmmaker behind The Baron. Finally managed to track him down. It's a little bit why this episode is not coming out during Black History Month, but I think it's well worth the wait and definitely well worth your time to hear from this filmmaker some great stories about his life and the making of The Baron. I hope you enjoy. I have to say, there's not a lot written about you out online. And from what I understand, you've had a pretty fascinating career and I would love to know more about it. I mean, how did you even get your start? Where did you grow up at? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was very good in art, but I was in high school. So I, I went to uh, Western Reserve when it was Western Reserve. I think it's Case Western. Primarily, I was in, in art and uh, I didn't finish school. I was in there for about two years. And this was in the early 60s. So I went out and I got a job in an advertising agency. Cleveland was a big advertising town in those days. I got a job in an advertising agency as an office boy. I thought I was going to be in the art department and do that, but I was pretty much just delivering mail. So I was in my creative director's office, who was a very interesting woman. She had a drinking problem, but she was very good at what she did. And so one day she was sitting there a little into her cups, and she asked me when I came through, she said, well, what are you going to do? You're not going to do this, or are you laughing? So I said, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And she said, well, you ought to write copy. Anybody can do this. <laughs> so I said, really? And she said, yes. And so she started giving me, she didn't want to, I'll tell you, I'll teach you. I said, sure, great. And so she started giving me assignments, primarily in radio. And I started doing them. I was fascinated by it. So I started doing them and I got pretty good at it. And so I started, she actually started giving me some assignments and I started getting stuff recorded for clients. And this was the time of the man in the gray flannel suit and all of that. And Madison Avenue was the place to go if you were in advertising, obviously. And the guys who worked at the place, who I became very friendly with, were primarily young guys who had come back from the Korean War. They were now married. They were established. They all wanted to go to Madison Avenue. 
try their hand, it'd be great on Madison Avenue. But they were all now established and they had families and little kids, so they couldn't go. I started winning a local awards in advertising for some of the radio stuff I was doing. And so they said to me, we can't go, but why don't you go to New York? And they literally took up a collection for me so I would have money to go to New York. And they helped me put together a little book from the stuff that I had been doing around there with my creative director. And my father had worked on New York Central Railroad, so I had a pass. And so I got got my little book together, and I took a train up from Cleveland to New York, and I started looking for a job. I was staying at Sloan House YMCA, and I was there about, I don't know, four days, trying to get my bearings and see what I had to do. And all the guys had told me that I had to get a head, I had to go find a headhunter who would help me start getting interviews. So I had been looking through to see who I could go to. And I went to a woman named Barbara, I think her last name was. And uh, she was the first person I tried. I had my little book. And I went into her office, which was an incredible office. She had these huge elephant chairs of red leather. And she had, it was just what you would think. And uh, her receptionist was there. And she, I said, I went to try to see Barbara. She said, she's got a full, she's having a appointment with you. And uh, I said, no. I just thought maybe if she had some time, she could see my work. And she said, I doubt it. She never sees anybody without an appointment, but you could take a seat over there. And I'll ask her when she comes in. And so the woman came in. She looked like Diana Vreeland. And she walked through. She saw me sitting there. She talked to uh, the uh, woman who was behind the desk. And she turned around and looked at me again. And she shook her head and she went into her office. So I sat there. And the woman who was behind the desk, she was a nice lady, young girl. And she uh, let me sit there. So I sat there, and she eventually left the receptionist. And that was exceptional in itself because she allowed me to continue to sit there after she had left. So I'm still sitting there. It's now, I don't know, maybe 8 o'clock. And Barbara finally comes out of her office. And she sees me still sitting there. She said, she let you sit here? And I said, yes. And so she said, all right, I'll give you five minutes. And I think she gave me the five minutes because I was black. And the business at that point, was literally white. As a matter of fact, advertising in those days had been a very wasp business. And in the early 60s, the creative department started to fill up with most of the writers were now Jewish, who before could not get into advertising. And most of the art directors were Italian. And there were all kinds of jokes about both of them, and usually bantered between the two. In any case, she let me come back to her office. She looked at what I had. And she said, well, this is very good. <laughs> and she looked me up and down and she couldn't quite figure out how I got it and, you know, how I got there. So I told her my little story. She thought it was very charming. And <laughs> she said, okay, let me see what I can do. She said, call me in a couple of days and leave this. So I did. I went and back to Sloan House YMCA and met a few guys. And one of them became a great friend of mine who was an art director who eventually got into Doyle Dane, which was the big creative agency at that time. So I called her back in a couple of days, and she said, I've got an interview for you over at Gray Advertising. So I went over to Gray Advertising, and they uh, put me on as a trainee. And I was a trainee for about, I don't know, four or five months. And they moved me up. They said, all right, let's start. Let me give you some assignments. So they started giving me assignments. And 
I don't know, but then it was less than a year. I was full copywriter over there. And I was there for about, I don't know, maybe a year, two years. I left there and went to, because the guy I was working for, who was my group head, went to Ted Bates. And so I went over to Ted Bates and I was there for, I don't know, a couple of years. And I was made VP and associate creative director. And I was the youngest one they had made ever, still in my early 20s. So I did that for a bit. And then at that point, advertising had completely changed. Before that, it was, you know, the A's and the B's going through the various arteries in the body and stuff like that. And you couldn't show a toilet on television. The business was very staid. And now all of a sudden it had turned into this highly creative business. And those of us who were writing copy and the art directors, we all thought of ourselves as artists and that what we were doing was really art. And a lot of the stuff really was very good and really super creative. That all changed after a bit, but, and advertising agents, Doyle Dane had come along and they were doing Volkswagen ads that first come out with this, showing the car and calling it a lemon and things like that. And it was really an exciting creative time. So as a creative director, now I thought of myself as really a creative genius. I went to another smaller agency because black agencies were then also coming up. The whole thing was, it's, I, it was just years and years ago, as we know, as I'm saying to you, but at that point, a lot of marketers were realizing the power of the black market. And because of all the things that were going on in terms of civil rights, then there was this sort of opening of opportunity for the slick guys who were in New York who to put something together. And I became an, a, a creative director of an agency that I helped start with another with black entrepreneur who was the first spot salesman at NBC. He sold spot advertising. And he was a very flamboyant guy named John Small. And we started an agency. And I was doing that and one day one of the one of the because I was interested in film. I had been a real film buff all my life. And I was talking to one of the guys and he said I was thinking about what I could do because the possibility of film was starting to open up. And Van Peoples had did Sweetback. And that was like a real explosion. And so I was looking around, and one of the guys said, you ought to go and look at what's happening on Broadway, because they had all these pump cars and <laughs> people in the life. And at that point, there were a lot of black people going to the movie houses on Broadway. And, and that was happening in most of the major cities. And the, the term that had been coined was the combat zones. Because of that, a lot of white patronage started to leave, and probably was at that moment in time. This was in, oh, I guess, the late sixties. It was just a whole different. It was just different. All of a sudden, all these pimp cars were lined up on the streets, and it was a different life. And I had never seen anything quite like that. And so I got into it. I just got into the life. I had a friend who was. I just opened a employment agency in Harlem. So he knew a lot of these guys and guys who were in the life who were selling cocaine had gotten very popular. This was before people were using crack or anything like that. This was all before that whole the whole crack period started. And cocaine was the new craze around New York. It's very expensive. So just 
high level folks had it. Most of the people who were snorting were quite frankly were white. And I met a major cocaine dealer through my friend. And uh, I decided to do something on him. And so I wrote Superfly. And uh, that was the first thing I wrote. And I had been in advertising, so I knew my way around in terms of production. How my producer, who knew how to make a movie, that was Sig Shore. And although I didn't get the credits for it, I was actually co-producer on that. I, I knew Ronnie, Ron, the guy who started, Ron O'Neill from Cleveland. My friend, who was starting the uh, employment agency in uh, Harlem, had been a big tax star in college. And uh, his name was Nate Adams, and he was the one who got the clothes and stuff for the picture. And all the locations and things like that I got through friends. With a lot of running around, a lot of cheating, and a lot of craziness, we did the picture. It was the first picture. And when you get and do something like that, and it really is explosive, and you just think, this is how it is. And everybody kept telling me, Philip, this is not how it is. This is miraculous what this picture has done. So I had a ride for a bit. I was like the flavor of the month. And that was great. I got to uh, Columbia, sent me to Africa to make my next great movie. I sold them on doing a thing in Africa. That was an interesting idea. So they sent me there, and I was there for months. I went with Gordon Parks, my partner, <laughs> and we went scouting locations, and I was going to finish writing the script while I was there. But we went all over Africa. We spent months out there going on safari and doing all these things. And of course, the one thing I wasn't doing was writing the script. I was just having a wonderful time. And when I got back, I won't mention the name of the executive. He became a pretty big executive. And we had he looked at what I had done, and he was really upset because he had stretched out. They had spent all this money. And people were looking at him, what this was a step to begin with, because most of the things that were being done now were these street pictures, and that's what they wanted, attempts beating up somebody. But he had bought my pitch and had sent me off to do this high-level movie in Africa. And I came back with a script that was not at all high-level. But I was doing some rewrites when, and it was coming along. It was coming along, and it could have really finally been done. When you're young and you don't know and you have no depth and you really think that the world sort of revolves around you and you're now a big star and nothing can happen, I made the mistake of telling my executive who stepped out on the limb with me that when he was passing on one of my rewrites and giving me notes, got indignant and told him he didn't know how to make movies. So he told me, I still didn't know how to write a check. And there's not going to be another check I'm writing for you. So that was the end of that. And then I started to find out that it was not a cakewalk to get a deal in California. And I was, it was about a black executive here in the States, who was an advantaged kid all of his life, and he had managed to go to one of the Eastern colleges, and he had lots of good credits, and he had gotten a job at a mining company, and he was on the rise. He was 
really on the rise. And this mining company was having trouble with some of their holdings in Africa, where most of their mines were, where most of the wealth of the company was coming from, because there was a revolutionary who wanted to take over the country and wanted to mine the mines in their mines and everything else. So they, they decided to send this executive over there because he was a pretty good talker and had told them that maybe he could do something because it was a big, big step up for him. And so he went over to see if he couldn't make some kind of a deal with the revolutionary who was obviously going to take over the country after a lot of fighting. And that's what it was about. He goes over and he gets caught up in it. And he starts to understand why they're having the revolution and why they want to take over the mines. And he has to deal with that. That's his dilemma. And the more he gets caught up in it, the farther he gets from the company he's working for. And that was the essence of the idea. It was about a guy, about a black man who had, because of of circumstance, had not been affected so directly by what was going on to other black people here in this country and was advantaged enough so he was able to go to an Ivy League school and have that experience and had been accepted in the school and then got out of that and through his his contacts there, had gotten into an executive program at this mining company, this major mining company, blue chip mining company, and had, against all circumstances, moved up really relatively fast in the company. It was a lot about, I had, it was how I came through and was who he was. And he had this distorted view of himself in this world. And he learned that even though he had all these advantages, he was still black. And the circumstances of what was going on then is still pretty much going on today. He was subject to everybody else. So he learns that lesson and he then has to act on it. And that was where the story was, what I had sold. And the guy at the studio thought it was an interesting idea. And then I said, look, to finish this, I want to go there and see this and have this experience, the same experience this man would have, and see the things he would see, and then see how that changed him. And I I had a close friend. This was when Gaddafi was paying to make revolution around the world. And I had a friend who was African and who was talking to me about the country people in Africa and the advantage people who had come and been educated here in England and their ties with the people who, the white countries who ran their countries and how they had how corrupt they were in the sense of not at all trying to do anything for their own people. They were just glad to have what they had and considered themselves elite as well. And so, of course, he goes back, when he goes back to this country, he goes into that community because that's the community he would go to. And he sees them, he meets a woman there who, the more he becomes radicalized, the bad, the worse it is for their relationship. And they were having a rather wonderful relationship. She was exactly what she wanted. She had also been educated in, in England. So they had a lot in common and everything else. But as he became more radical, that was starting to destroy their relationship. And so it had all these elements in it. 
that was thing, and especially for that time. So that's where I got to go, and I took my wife at the time, and Gordon took his girlfriend at the time, and uh, we went first class all over East Africa, and they actually sent a representative out from it for us from London, who was setting us up at all these places and who was going on safari. It was just unbelievable. Of course, young guy who thought he was walking on top of the world did just that, just enjoyed himself to no end, and did not really work on his idea as hard as he should have. Then when I got back here, I said, like I said, I started working on it very hard. And it was getting close. It was getting close to maybe a little more work. And my exec was willing to do it and to get me help if I needed it in certain areas. And because he was on the line too, he didn't want to be embarrassed after having spent all this money and having talked his own management into doing it. So he, he had a lot at stake. So he did not want a wise ass to stand up in his office and say something completely stupid, which is what I did. So that was the end of that. So anyway, I came back to New York and because I was, I knew advertising, I was easy for me to get slip back into advertising and to make money. That's what I did. Although once you've done a film and have tried to do a second film, you are a business and that's what you want to do. So even though I was back in advertising, I was making a lot of money and I was doing fine. I had thought of this other idea, which was, it wasn't just the Baron at that point. It was Baron Wolfgang's script. He wrote a million. And I started working on the script and I had a close friend named Nelson Lyon, who was a brilliant writer. Nelson wrote the telephone book, which was the most ridiculous thing ever. But it was, in its own way, it was absolutely brilliant. And he was incredibly good with dialogue. And he'd written another thing, which was just so outrageous that it was never going to get produced. Not produced now. It might get produced now. Called Lamb Chop. And <laughs> Lamb Chop was the was a princess. She was actually the queen of nigger heaven. And she had, I don't know, somehow offended her father who was the king. She was like the princess. And he's banished her to earth where she, uh, I've forgotten exactly how he said that, but she had to make a white man her something. And it was the funniest thing because she ended up with Johnny, with a Johnny Carson character. You understand? This was back in the early 70s. Now, with a Johnny Carson character that they did the most out. She completely destroyed his life. He was in love with her to no end. And she had this thing where she could put spells on people when she danced. And it was the funniest, most outrageous piece I'd ever read. Anyway, he and I were, Nelson and I were really good buddies. We were running all over the place together. So when I had this idea, I got Nelson to uh, co-write it with me. And the Baron was a, very, when we finished the Baron, it was two hours long. It was like two hours and 10 minutes long. And in the mid-70s, no studio was going to buy a black picture that was two hours and 10 minutes long. Although it, it was incredibly different. I, I remember I had it when we finished it, because it was all the talk of the town when we were making this thing. All the cafe was cafe society talk. We shot it everywhere, all over the town. I met a guy 
in advertising. He was also in advertising, white guy. And uh, he had found these people in Texas that he was trying to sell a film project to. And he was not being very successful. So he knew I had done film and a big one. And he also knew I was pretty good on my feet in terms of pitching. So he got me to go out to Texas to try to help him sell his project. So I said, okay. And then it was a weekend. <laughs> so I flew out to Houston with him. And we couldn't sell his project because it was not very good. But met these guys who were just the most outrageous and the richest little guys I had come across in a while. And it was all new money for them. Some of the guys who worked for Tom were old money, old Texas money. Actually, they were, they were East Coast money. The two, one of the guys who was with him, one of the guys was old Texas money. One of the guys was big family in Connecticut. They actually donated the glass flowers to Harvard. Anyway, they were his two aunts, his two lieutenants. And Tom had was a middle class, not even middle class, working class kid who went to UCLA and was just brilliant and had gotten a job with a very major company out in Texas. They were they did the oil business. Now and then Tom started his own company. Now in those days when they would drill for oil out in the in, in Texas and Louisiana and natural gas would come off and they couldn't sell it because of laws back east where most of it was being used. So they couldn't sell it. So Tom got this idea of putting it in therms and just holding on to it to see what would happen later on. And so if you ever had driven through the roads and things in certain parts of Texas and Louisiana, you would see these white tubes that ran alongside the highway, long, long white tubes. They were all filled with natural gas. And because you, you could get away with doing a lot of things back then, you got to do now because nobody knew. Anyway, they were just about the time when he was starting to think he wanted to go into movies. They The regulations changed back east because of the gas crunch and all the rest of it. And so you could start selling the stuff back east. So all the big utility companies started to buy it. And these guys would get on the phone and sell this stuff like it was going out of style. And they were also the wildcatters who would have these outrageous parties and things for investors. And they would put down these wildcat wells. Most of the investors never made a dime out of it. But at tax time, they would go out and set up these camps out in the desert. And there would be all these incredible mobile homes that they would bring out to the middle of the desert and they would have them circled up and they would have food camps and they would bring out chefs and everything else. And then they would invite all of these top tax guys out and their best clients to to a barbecue in the middle of the desert. And of course, the all these mobile homes had these gorgeous women in them that were that was the gift. So these guys would come out and have these incredible weekends and they would uh, write them up. These guys would, would invest in oil wells because this was, they could make this kind of money and live this kind of life. <laughs> so they would all do that. So he was rolling in money and he had, as one of his investors, 
I've forgotten the name of the family, but they were the, one of the first ones to make the birth control pill. And this was, again, they were doing this in the 60s and the 70s, so this was huge money. So he had all this money, and he wanted to be in the movies as a little side thing. So he didn't like the guy who brought me out. He didn't like his project, but he liked me. And so he said, Philip, you know, you got something. I'm, hey, bring it out. Let's talk about it. So I said, okay, Tom. And I went back and I finished our script with Nelson. Went back out. And Tom read it and loved it. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd seen. And he loved it. He thought it was just great. And his two hauntos, they thought it was just great too. So this man gave me the money to make the movie. We're talking millions of dollars now. It's not a cheap picture. And for a black picture back in those days, we thought it would be a crossover. It's not going to just be a black picture. It would be a great crossover movie. We thought, my God, this is magic. And it took, for me, it was magic making the picture because it was my directorial debut. And then that's something, once once you've done that once in your life, you never want to stop doing that. Anyway, we made the picture. And I was able to get Calvin, who was a friend who I'd met through clubbing. And Marlena, I knew, and I had she had done a picture for my producer, Arjun Hess. And she was absolutely one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen in my entire life. She's just incredible looking. She had gotten very ill when I first met her because I had done another picture with Sig, which I, after, this was after I'd come back and before I went back in advertising, I would start another picture with Sig, but he was such, he couldn't help himself. He just had to hustle everybody, including the crew. It was just, and I was over it because it wasn't my picture anymore. I was now co-writer on this thing that he was doing and I was going to produce it with him and, and although I liked the people involved, we had Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Harvey Keitel. And it was, it, but I was the one who was in between. I was the one who was paying him and then running to the bank to take the money out. <laughs> so I just couldn't. I said, fuck this. We, I just left. But I, one of the great things was I did meet Alan Metzger, who was, my, who was the DP on that picture. That's when I met Alan. Alan and I hit it off. And Alan had an incredible eye. And back then when all the stuff went to labs and all the folks in the labs would look at his work, I knew that Alan had a gift. He really was good. And he and I became friends. And so I figured if I ever got a picture, I would use Alan. And then this whole thing came up after we went back in advertising, came back out. It, it, it came together very quickly. So I got Chiz Schultz, who I had known for years. Chiz was Harry Belafonte's producer. And I had, when I first was still in advertising, I was a great advertising, I met Chiz. And Chiz, because I was always enamored of Harry, and then Chiz introduced me to Harry. And then for a bit, I was, Harry and I got off. He would, I would go over to the Russian tea room with Harry, and that was where great days. Go over and have, have lunch because the Russian tea room was Harry's spot. And they loved him over there. And so he was like a little prince when he went into uh, the tea room. And it was great spending time with him over there. But that's when I met Chiz. And so when I got this picture, I brought on Chiz as a producer. Chiz was a guy you could work with. And he was sweet and lovely. And he wasn't a 
Gorilla and like most of these producers were at the time, were doing independence. And you could trust him. You could work with him. He wasn't going to try to tell you what to do. And he was a good friend. So I had him, and that's really how I met Marlene, because he had just had produced Guns N' And Bill Gunn had become a friend, too. So it was, that was the community. I did terms of the film community and theater community that I was hanging with at the And so that's how Tiz came through. And a number of other people in the script who got cut out. The guy who was the, who was the advertiser, the real fellow like that, was my friend John Small, who had still had this agency that we had started. That was, so that was his office that we used for that. And then we got Beverly Johnson just for the little walk-on piece. I got Gil Scott Heron, who did the soundtrack. And I got Gil because the agent who actually sold Superfly for us at the Warners was the major agent at that time, a guy named Louis Blau, who was the major agent out here at that time. And a younger guy who worked for him in, for his, in his music division had gotten us Curtis Mayfield. And he and I, the agent, and Curtis too, I became really close to Curtis, but the agent who had set that up, he and I had become pretty close as well. And he got me Gil Scott Heron because that was who he was, one of the people he was handling there. So Gil did the, uh, the soundtrack. The, the original picture was just totally sensational, I thought. And I got Alan, who was my DP, and we had enough money do what we wanted to do. So it, we really put together what I thought was a great movie. And <laughs> Tom and I fell out. And again, it was because of my own arrogance. But Tom was stand-up people. When I had made the deal with Tom, I was always saying, hey, look, when we, when we finally sell it, I'll get back the in the deal, I'll get back the production costs. And the market had changed then. First, we, plus, first of all, we made Superfly on a credit card, so it wasn't difficult getting the production money back on that picture. But this was now years later, and the film industry had changed. They were not as enamored of black product anymore because there was no more combat zone. The whole thing had changed back to where they were having their own street pictures coming through then that were really popular. And so the market had changed. And had I not, in a strange way, offended Tom, he would have went along with any deal I got. He didn't need, he didn't need the production money back. He could have written it off. I mean, what he did, he was taxed. He could have written it off in a heartbeat. And he had already planned to give me money on the second picture anyway. So when we had our splitting, and he was still okay with that as long as I delivered. Because now it was no longer friendship. It was like any other deal he struck. You deliver or we live up to the, what, the, letter, the, up the letter of the contract. And so when I couldn't get the money back. Now, the man who was over at Columbia, who was buying product and distributing it for them, had just done a picture called The Lords of Flatbush. And he it was a little street picture. And he had made had a good opening and had made money and was popular and had gotten press and everything else. And he saw the picture and said, I can make this a hit. And he was willing to give us some money back. And he was guaranteeing prints and advertising and all the rest of it. He was, and promotion and the whole Megillah. 
a sweetheart deal. But he was not going to give us back the full, because he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have gotten into the company. But he wanted the picture. And Tom was still <laughs> smarting because of our little differences. And uh, so he wouldn't take the deal. He said, you promised me all the money back, so I'm not taking the deal. So he turned the deal down. And then I was scrambling. It was almost, all right, I'm not taking that deal, and you can do what you want with it, pretty much. But I'm not doing that. He made sure I couldn't get that. And then I was out with hustlers, and I listened to people. And that was my first mistake. We can't sell. This is really kind of picture. This guy, guy is So I ended up taking some of this advice, people who couldn't sell a who couldn't sell an umbrella in a rainstorm. I ended up cutting my picture up. And what you saw and what people see now, it's just a bastardized, highly bastardized version of what the original half of the picture saw. And I don't even have a print of the original picture, which is, it was just disastrous. It was like I, I'd let somebody dismember my child <laughs> and stood by and watched it. So nothing ever happened to it. And then <laughs> to add insult to injury, the picture, because, you know, Tom was paying for everything, so we didn't have a bill on the street. This picture was 100% paid for. I had my negative stored at Movie Lab. And Movie Lab was all the film people in New York were starting now to, because film, the, all the street stuff has moved out of New York. This is where CineLab started. And they, the people that started to move out of the city in terms of production area then. The negative was in, like I said, storage over there. And what they did was they would sell unpaid for negatives. Producers wouldn't make deals with them and then they couldn't deliver. So Movie Lab would get negatives and they would have all these negatives stacked up in their storage facilities. And then small distributors would come in and they would have auctions and they'd buy the negatives. And they would then make stuff up because the whole thing was it was starting to happen and was cassettes. So they would make these things up. They could get some kind of run with it somewhere. They would do that. Otherwise, they'd just make it up in cassettes and they would go out to the auctions and sell them. And my picture was completely paid for, but it got into one of these auctions and they sold it. So I immediately called Tom and said, Tom, we got a hit now because <laughs> they got to get us our picture back and we're going to sue him. Tom had no appetite for that. He had no appetite for that. He said, oh, oh, please. And so the thing, I had no money to do that at the time because I was the kind of guy who was, every dime I made, I would spend it on a car or something. So <laughs> I had no money to do a lawsuit. So the picture was gone. And it was, and I didn't know what happened to it. I knew that it was that it had been sold. And then maybe I don't know. It was a long time, man. It must have been five, six, more than that years before it surfaced as a cassette. And I was talking to Calvin because Calvin had just started doing television thing before he died. And I got a call from him, and he said he had bought a copy of it. And that was the first I knew about it. And then many years later, I was talking to a guy. He said, yeah, I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> and I realized you could, you could go on YouTube and just put the name in and see the whole movie. And I was really surprised about that. And then I got people calling me up saying, hey, look, let's talk about this. This is, this is a really good movie. What was 
And then satellites, some people started to follow it and started to look at it. And so it's got a little following. But it irked me because what people were looking at was not even a, a shadow of what we had actually done. Tell me about the original version. What was that original cut like? Well, the original cut was him making the movie. The way the picture starts now was the very end of the picture because it was about a guy, <laughs> my character, who was just arrogant and would do things and would burn bridges. And finally, it caught up to him. He had this idea. He made this picture. He needed to get money to finish the picture. And he started going to all of his friends to help him do it. And there were a couple of people that it was because he goes to a dent cut out of the picture who he's got cut out. So there's the dentist. He went to the advertising guy with just a little fraction of that because that was a much longer scene to his friend who was in advertising. And he went to all these people who he had in some way offended or had not really lived up to what he was supposed to do with them. These were all spoiled relationships. And he had been the cause of it, really. And so none of them would really help him. So in the end of each of them, he would have these fits where he would say, I don't need you and all that sort of thing. And he kept getting deeper and deeper in until the man who actually gave him the picture came back and said, look, you've got to, I can't give you any more money and you got to get some money. And that's what that starts to trail downward where he goes to Mama Lou when he starts living with her and all of that. And then in the very end, when he realizes that he has, after he kills Joey, and he realizes that he realizes what he's done, not just with Joey, but with his whole fucking life. And now the one thing that he still, although he's destroyed her, that he still loves is his woman. And he knows that if he doesn't come up, they're going to kill everybody. And so he decides, fuck it. If there's no money and the two little freaks are destroyed, even though there's a family behind them, obviously, it's not going to go any farther than that. Nobody's going to take restitution out and kill his wife once he's done this thing, once he's killed himself. And that was the whole idea with this last thing, where he, this last glorified move of his, and he goes out to, to kill himself. And it, it, it's the way he's always thought about life. And so he decides to take this heroic, stupid way out. And he that's when he gets in the car, and that's when he goes up and sees the kid. It's not really part of the movie. You see him at the very beginning of the movie making the movie. You see him on the highway and doing shots and things, and you see the guy who's the director, who's the guy I use, who's a friend of mine, Gary, who was a pretty decent little filmmaker in New York at the time, too. He was the director in the picture, and that's how the thing starts. Things start with them holding up all the traffic on the freeway, which we did. We actually, and they had, we had some other cars out there who shot all that stuff. It was all, it was just horrendous. They had, people had no idea what had happened. We had tied up traffic on every single pottery coming into New York City. And so we got all that footage. So we used all that in the opening of the picture where they, you see him on the highway driving. And they've got, and then we show all the traffic being held up because of him driving on the highway. And then there's a scene where he comes back into where they're 
to where everything is set up and he's fighting with the air and all this stuff. That's how the thing really opens. And you see him driving as Baron Wolf Gangrel trips, but he's driving on the highway and he's beating away from whatever. Because it's, it's the pictures, the picture he's making is like this fantasy. It's a little fable. And in the end is when you, he goes up because now he's going to kill himself. He told these guys where to meet him to get the money. And so he's up in Harrison and that's when he drives up dressed up the way he is and sees the kids. And when he says, I'm going to race on out of here is when he races on out to, uh, to do the boot turn and drive into the car after he's thrown the money all over the highway and they kill these two guys. And it ends on that. And, it's a long arc that takes two hours to go through because these are so long. It, it, but the scenes were really rather good and compelling. You didn't yawn on anything as he was, as you found out about who he was. And he never knew who he was until the very end. Did he realize that he had completely fucked his life and all these people who, for the most part, loved him? Because they loved who he was and what he you know, how he cared. It, it, but then he just shit on everybody, including his wife. And he realized what he had done. He comes back. This is his last scene where he comes back, where she's doing a shoot. And he comes back to the shoot and he tells her he loves her and stuff. And I've forgotten how that is in this piece. And he comes back and he does that. So he says his goodbyes to her. And then he goes and he uh, gets in the car. Goes up. The next thing you see, he's got these kids, and he gets in the car and drives off and kills himself. So that's how the original works, and it's hard to see that. And what, but it was rather well done. So that's what the picture was. And after that, I went into TV development because I I went over one of the kids who was <laughs> Jesus Christ, one of the kids who was in who was. Worked on my picture. I had just gotten out of, out of out of NYU, and he'd done some stuff in the film school there. And he went to a little development company in New York, I think Westfall, I think it was named. And his best friend, who was working at this place with him, was Warren Littlefield. But the two of them were working there, and. I decided after the demise of the Baron, I could have gone immediately back into advertising. But, and I did, I went to uh, for a bit, because I went to, uh, I was married, my first wife at the time, and we were <laughs> living on 80, 62nd Street. So I had a bit of a nut. And I went back to Kenyon and Eckhart. But while I was there, I decided to, I, I came up with an idea to do, because I was still very close to Calvin. I came up with an idea, and Marlena was, had gotten back in decent health. I came up with an idea to do a black Nick and Nora Charles. And Billy and McGee was the name of it. And I wrote up a piece. And I took it over to, Stuart Jeslow was his name. I took it over to Stuart, and like I said, when we're up in, this little place called Westfall. And I pitched it to them, and they, of course, fell down. And so did the guy who was actually running the place. He liked it a lot. So we went over to HBO, and what was her name? She was the big honcho over there. I pitched to her, 
and she was floored. She bought the thing on the pitch in a four-page treatment and gave us money for to do the pilot, pilot the pilot script. And then if she picked up the script, she would do the pilot. And this is when HBO was just coming and they would make a lot of money and what's her name? Anyway, because she was really big then, and she was just floored. I partnered with a good friend of mine who was a writer, and we were working on it and working on it. It was always delusional in terms of wanting to get things done the way I wanted to get them done. But in television, you can't be late on an assignment. You've got to be on time. You can't. Once you get into the into that mill, then, you know, they, and they put you out there then you really can't be late on the stuff. And so we were very late. And so we didn't get picked up. But it was very good for both Warren and Jesuits too, because they, because of that pitch, got elevated and got into make a lot of contacts. And they both came out to, uh, to California. And I decided to come out. I came out. And this was when... Because I really didn't want to do any more advertising. So I came out, and this was when there was real development being done for television. It was a business. All the studios and all the production companies would have these deals constantly going on. You could live on your development deals, whether it got made into a movie or not, because that was when they had pilot season and they picked pilots and they would make the pilots and then. They would pick from the pilots what they wanted to put on air. There was a lot of money being thrown around. And both Stu and Warren got into the mix. Stu got into the mix first and over to Fox and became major in terms of development. He did a lot of shows. And so with Stuart, I was living on development. And I was in the mix. I would get a couple of shows maybe that, that might get up. and then. Other things, but Stuart, if he could, would throw me something to develop. Okay, do this, do that. And that's how I lived for a while here. That was my hidden television. And I finally, because Warren had become major over at NBC, I went to Warren and I had really a great idea, which he liked a lot. And I was partnering then with, with Wesley. And we did a script for the show that was, I think, sensational. And everybody else did, too, including Warren. The problem was that, again, I was late. And it was, I was late for a stupid reason, too. I won't even go into that. Because it wasn't my fault. But for the first time, I caught myself. Because I could have gone, I made the deal. So I could have gone straight to Warren and said, here it is, all finished. And I'd have been on time because it was pilot season. He said, you, I'm starting you late. So you've got to, and I've got other commitments in this area. So I, I can't, you can't be late on this one. And the production company that I went with to do it, because I got a deal with at Stewart's production company. And they were doing a lot of stuff. And all the, 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 a lot of the late night, all the prime time serials were being done with them. This was Moonless was the president of the company, less. So we developed it, and there was a couple of producers there. So when I, we turned in, when Richard and I turned in the, uh, the script, 
two of them gave us notes. And the notes were stupid. <laughs> but And I knew I was going to be, I knew that I couldn't be late. Now, it all of my, all the time that I've been in entertainment, it was my thing to say, fuck you. I'm not doing this. This is stupid. And continue on my own path and take the, took the stuff down there and given it to Warren and we'd have gotten on. Because this thing was going to have uh, James Earl Jones and Diane Carroll as the principals in it. And it was like an extended family and they were the grandparents. It was just right on the money. So I didn't. I, I said, for the first time, I caught myself and I said, Philip, you, how many times have you fucked up doing this? Be a team player for once in your goddamn life. So I said, okay. We worked on the note. The placate people, we fudged this and fudged that around because there was this woman who was over there at the time who was supposed to be there pro on this. Anyway, we fudged around. We finally got everybody to say, oh, yeah, this is now fine. And of course, when I took it over, then it was, <laughs> I was late. But I got picked up for the next flight. And we were actually talking to the talent now and trying to get people lined up so we could start shooting on the next flight. And that was when the big writer's strike happened. It lasted for over a year. And that, that changed everything. Because there was no... They, they had so much stuff piled up and ready to go that they couldn't do all that time that I was lost in the mix. So the thing, the thing died. And from there, I scrambled around, did independent stuff. And then finally I got over, I landed it. I did a special for charity care. And my friend who had originally got, who introduced me to the hustler who I made Superfly about, had, was then working at United Negro College Fund as their promotions guy and stuff. And, and it was his bright idea to, to do this special. While he was there at United Negro College Fund, he was doing the telethons. So he got to meet the people over at Dick Clark because they were the ones who were the production company that did the telethons for United Negro College Fund. So Nate then moved to the charity care and as their promotion guy and did all their media stuff for them. Nate's a really bright guy. Anyway, he uh, was over there and he decided what they needed was this television special. And he knew this producer who could do this, and that was me, of course. So I went in and talked to them. They said, yeah, great idea, and uh, put together something. And then that's when I went over to Dick Clark and met them because they were going to do the production for it. And then when we were having problems doing it because we were not getting any development money to do it, I went back and with my friend got care to put up the money themselves. And the clock folks were pretty impressed with that. So we finally did the piece. It was fair to middling special. And we syndicated it. So I met a lot of the syndication guys. And that was when syndication was really hot and a big thing because all the streaming stuff had to start to happen. So I got entrenched. And the clock people at that point said, why don't you come over here and join the family? I sat with a lawyer who didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And I went back with a price that was so high that there was no there wasn't room for negotiation. It was like it was, it was the figure that I asked him for was and Dick was a very cheap company. They it, it, they were, it was like a mouth dropper and how could he I can't even negotiate from this place. So it was just a pass the dough play. 
So then I came back to New York and was once again in advertising because I could always come back to advertise. And eventually I came back out because I just wanted to be, now I'm bitten, I wanted to be in entertainment. So I came back out to, uh, to California and my new bride, who I've been with now for almost, I don't know, 40, 40 years, uh, stayed back in New York and I was back out here hustling and nothing was happening. Finally, my guy who I got rather close to who actually produced the shows for Dick and they were doing the, uh, the telephone things and who was actually the producer who worked with me when I did the, when I actually did the show for care, he did all the, he was a cowboy. He did the country Western awards and he did a whole bunch of Dick's evergreens. And I talked to him and he said, maybe I can get you over here again. And so I did, I went back over to Dick as VP of development and marketing. And stayed there for a bit. And I liked Dick a lot. Dick, Dick was one. Of, Dick could have really had great development because he had some smart people, and he was smart. But he was just the cheapest person in the world. He didn't want to spend the time for anything. But a really delightful man. Anyway, I again, I had a, a head bumping with him. It was a strange thing because I there was a lot of stuff was going on that was causing racial tension at the time. The whole thing out here with the riot and everything else when they beat, I forgot the guy's name, and they had that thing that happened out here in California. And this was a lot of tension going on. And one of the writers who I was working with, whose name I've totally forgotten, was really very bright. And he came up with this idea, this comedic way to to really go into racism and that kind of thing and we're in modern racism and modern stuff it was happening here in the United States. And it was really a great idea. And we pitched it, or I pitched it to the guy who did specials. I forgot which network it was. It may have been ABC. But I pitched it to the guy, because I had gotten a relationship with him from just pitching. Because you, when you're doing that, you're pitching every day. Because you've got somebody bringing something into your office, and you look at it, and you massage it a little bit, and you figure out who you can pitch it to, and you go and you pitch it so, and the window for guys at the production companies and is always open for the people in that, whoever is responsible for that division, that network. So I got to meet this guy who was doing specials and we hit it off. We had lunch a lot. And I took this thing to him and he passed primarily because he, which I didn't know at the time, he had already accepted a job someplace else. And he gave it a rough pass. And I think he thought maybe he might take it with him. But in any case, it was the past for the moment. And Dick said, all right, it was a good idea, but let it go. And Les Moonves was over the network then. And Dick was going over to see him. I called the secretary and said I wanted to talk to him about something that had gotten passed on that shouldn't gotten passed on. And it was a great idea. And I gave her a little pitch, and she gave him a little pitch. And so he said, yeah, I'll see him. I'll talk to him about it. Dick had a meeting with Les. She said to Dick, because he had called himself, because his wife was his secretary, and she was out or something, so he made the people to call himself. And she said, oh, Fenty is, because is, he said, he's really busy right now because of some reason. Because, you know, anybody would see Dick anytime he called. But she said, you've got an appointment here. Philip has got an appointment. He's got his time. Because he was just coming for a sit-down and just a, he said, if you don't mind doing that, we could I could plug you in much sooner because this meeting's already been set. And that's when he found out. 
that I had to set a meeting over his head around him after he told me not to do it. So he told her that meeting is, I'll come in, but that meeting is not happening. And then he came back to me <laughs> and said, listen, when we pitch to somebody in one of these divisions and they pass, we don't go over their heads and try to go to the boss and repitch it. My company doesn't do that. So since I hadn't gotten anything up, Dick was done with me. But he was a decent enough fellow, and I had comrades, the person who actually ran the company for him, allowed me to stay on without getting paid. I could get some up without offending him again. I could do that if I wanted to for a while. And I did. I got very close. I had a piece up, but it, it was going to take a long time. And I couldn't wait. So that was the end of my time as in the business. And so I sold commodities for a while. I had a friend who was doing that. So I started selling commodities. And I got tired of doing that about four years ago. And through, again, my friend, Nate, who was who had been working with Lloyd for a while, I knew Lloyd Price. And Lloyd was in very poor health and wanted to do something on his life because in, in reality, Lloyd did not want to be forgotten because he was one of the true pioneers of rock and roll. But he couldn't sell it to anybody. He couldn't sell his story to anybody at the time. This was just a few years ago. People didn't remember who he was. Now, I didn't realize that it was how severe that problem was, but a lot of younger people literally had never heard the name. Now, you started talking about the music and they would know, but they didn't know who the person was. Anyway, he wanted to do this. He was closer to passing than I thought he was. And although he was in a facility then, but he had just got the funds to do a Broadway show about himself. And that was when COVID set in and that killed it. They were ready to go out and do tryouts in Philadelphia and then bring the show into New York. And then it was dead. So. Lloyd wanted to have one last hurrah, regardless, even though he was in the hospital bed dying. He came up with an idea that was, I thought, brilliant, a way of telling his story. And the idea was, he was Don King's partner for the Rumble in the Jungle. Lloyd actually introduced Don King to Ali, because Lloyd, when Ali was really young, was Lloyd was one of his heroes, and he was he and Ali were the champ were running buddies, and that's how he actually that's how Don actually met him, and he met Don way back in the day when Don was a straight up gangster in Cleveland. And Don had been in had been arrested twice for murder, and was in jail for four years before his lawyers could get the. Uh, the thing turned over to manslaughter and stuff. It was a sort of a degree of self-defense and get him out on time served. Well, when he finally got out, his lady had saved a huge amount of money for him to cash and because this running his businesses. And he went to Lloyd and said, what was the exact phrase he used? Make me big and with doing anything but what I'm doing now. And so that was how the piece was labeled. And the name of the piece is Make Me Pick. And it is how that whole 
thing evolved with the fight. But to do that, it takes Lloyd back to when he was a kid. And we tell the whole story as a seven-part series, limited series, like they call it now. Seven-part limited series about how the whole thing came about. And that way, we go, we're able to go back to the very beginning with Lloyd and bring it all the way through where he first met Don through a huge racketeer that nobody ever heard of. Called, now they didn't call Scatter. And it was Scatter was the name I used from the man in, in Superfly, too, because he was a notorious racketeer in the Midwest who was ultimately killed by the mafia, but who was just incredible character. And the piece not, it not only goes through Lloyd and how they met and then through the fight and the great fiasco of the fight, it was just incredible stories about how the fight finally came together. Because let's face it, these two guys had never promoted anything other than themselves in their whole lives. So to raise the money to actually make that fight and to see the development of how Don developed himself to get to that point and the fact that Lloyd helped him do it and actually was the one who told him to comb his hair the way he did. Actually, they created themselves. But this fight was just the most extraordinary thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. So we started doing this thing. And anyway, Lloyd died before I got everything down. But Nate, who had been with him as his producer for years, knew everything and was on the fight, knew everything about it. So we tried to peddle it. At that point, I hadn't had an agent in years. And I couldn't do anything without an agent out here. And... I was not able to get it up. I got some interest, but I was not able to really pitch it to anybody who could have green-lighted it. And again, I just needed to, I just couldn't, I, I worked on it for years, for a couple of years. I just couldn't spend any more time on it. So I had to go back. This was relatively new history. And I had to go back into selling commodities. And I still have it. It's still, I think, a, a an incredible piece. I've watched the streaming industry change and getting ready to change again, or it just has changed again. And you really, to, in order to do anything, you really got to be in the mix. And you got to be in the mix all the time. Anyway, that was the last thing that I was working on and still hanging out there. I would love to do that. And I've got a picture. Right now, my market's hot, so I'm selling commodities and primarily metals. And that's my story. Did they ask you to be part of the Superfly sequels? No, they did not. I guess I got something because they had to, to get it from the from Sig's family who owned the piece after we got through with it all, which I was always a little messed about because it started with me, not Sig. Like I say, we were partners for the longest time. Anyway, the the estate and my portion, my portion of that, we I guess we got something out of it. Sex now was small. It's hard to tell where it comes from. But no, they never did. And it was sad, too, because they tried to make the same picture over again and just make it in modern times. And to me, that was not the way to do it. And they, they made a picture they spent a lot of money on. And they, they tried to make it as sensational as they could. We had the, the love scene in our picture, which was, at the time, outrageous, but it was at least something that was in keeping with the characters that we were building. It was, it just showed 
their thing for each other. It's because he did that with everybody else in his life. And he started out with somebody else in his life. In terms of he was not, he had the same sensibilities that most men at that time had in terms of how they treated women or how they thought about women. But he did have this main woman this, who he was in love with and who he wanted to, to be with and get out of this life. So the scene had more meaning than just trying to show, okay, let's, let's show you some hot sex. This is, this is two or three people. And it was just a different thing. It was to try to take that same plot line and make it applicable today was not the best use of the characters or, or what could have been done today with it, how it could have been used today. It was because it's a different time. So anyway, no. I had read that the Baron might have been coming out on Blu-ray at some point. Is there any truth to that? I have no idea because, like I say, I don't own it. And I had I never made the battle for it. I, I was I should have directly after that, even though we did not go to court and all that stuff. I had the copyright. I still do. And I could have made a case if I had gone out and opened it myself. I could have made a case that was mine and they would have to come to sue me. And that was whoever owns it. And I'm not sure anybody knows who owns it at this stage of the game. It, I'm sure it's been shuffled through so many different hands and. There's so much paper on it in terms of contracts and stuff like that, back and forth to various people. The guys who were who first went into the into those vaults and bought that stuff, it was at the beginning, like I say, of cassettes just starting to come out. The big move into cassettes happened, and then out of cassettes, when what's happening now is going on. But I'm sure it changed because those guys would go to would make up their tapes and they would go to these almost swap meets where they would all go out there and trade titles and things like that and didn't know who was doing what. So I think, I would think the actual who owns it got shuffled around many times. At the beginning, I should have gone because one of my, a friend of mine is was Fred Williamson and Fred had gotten very good at selling stuff at Con because he knew all the buyers and things. The pictures that he made, they might have not been the best pictures or made a huge amount of money here, but he learned how the, he learned the business. So he knew how to go to con and the European film festivals and things and sell pieces. And so he could make money the way he was doing it. And I was at the time, I was a creative director at an agency called Uniworld. And he said, look, you ought to go out with me to, I mean, we can sell this. It just so <laughs> clean what you got and sell it. And then you can go back and try to cut what you want to cut and let somebody, let somebody say something. But I never did that. So now I have no idea, you know, what to do about that. There's nothing I really can do. And, and I, like I say, I don't have the original picture. I did do a re-edit of what is available, which is just pretty much the, uh, what was being shown. I just re-edited that and did a couple pieces and did some voiceover and stuff, but just to get it closer to the intention of the original picture. But I didn't have any of the uh, the stuff that was cut out or anything like that, so I couldn't do anything more than that. So I have not. And it very well may come out on Blu-ray. Who knows? It, it, there's just so much product out there now that unless you accidentally see something, you don't know. Ganjan Hess became a piece of... was immediately accepted into the New York art world 
Amazon at the Modern and things like that because Gunn was uh, really had gotten very much into that whole thing. He had a number of his lovers were very major people in terms of actors and things like that, really major people. And Billy was too. He was an incredibly elegant, incredibly well-spoken guy and really a genius in his own way. So his thing has a different kind of following, but even it's not popular. There's never a popular piece. But uh, no, I have no idea what, if it were put on Blu-ray, what it could do or in the form it's in right now. Like I say, it has gotten some little following. I was surprised. A lot of people were watching it and talking about it and talking about it. So it did get a lot of following. And then it got a lot of following by younger black guys who were looking at it, who were in the business and were saying, where'd this go and where'd this come from and stuff like that. So it was, I was surprised when I would hear these things. I was pleased, but I was, you know, it was surprised me. I had done nothing to promote. I had done nothing to promote it myself. I was told it was on, somebody had to tell me that I could go <laughs> watch it on YouTube. I had no idea that it was on YouTube and being played and it, it played in the, in the entirety of what I had no idea that was happening. You worked with Charles McGregor in The Baron and he was also in Superfly. What was he like to work with? Charles was a sweetheart. And Charles was true street. Charles was truly on the street. We were doing some casting and came into the room when we were doing Superfly. And I said, I looked at him and I saw he was fat fatty. I just look at him. And Charlie had just gotten out of jail. Charlie spent most of his life out in bars and was a very, very tough guy. There's all kinds of things what Charlie did to people. The whole thing about what this is, it was all Charlie talking because he knew what he was talking about. And he was just, for me, he was just a really gentle, sweet man who wrote books and started doing, he did some lectures. He was the first person I thought of when we started to do the pairing for us. And he, if he had gotten, I think Charlie could have made a lot of money and been very popular on just on the lecture circuit and things like that because he was very good on his feet. And he was charming and he knew these stories. He really knew real people and real thugs who had done terrible things. He understood the circumstances that they came through. He also he understood that they were still human beings and that they were worthwhile people. And if he knew them, you could see that. And he was good at telling young kids when they were heading in the wrong direction. And he did a lot of that while he was, before he died, he was surprised he died so many. But he was starting to become a recognized person who could go around and be something and do those, give those kind of talks. I think he could have really become a celebrity and a spokesman, but he passed and that was it. But I had a great relationship with him. He was just, really good person. Yeah. Charlie was very good. I'm very sorry he's gone. Mr. Fenty, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk with me today. I really appreciate this. Thanks for that. And thanks for listening to me. And I look forward to hearing myself. (laughs) All right, my friend. Bye-bye now. All right, we're back and we're talking about the Baron. And yeah, I'm not sure exactly what else needs to be said about this because there's just so little out there. I've looked everywhere for articles for reviews from the day it looks like this one was originally some people are saying that it was only released in 79 but i think it was released in 77 and then had a re-release in 79 but again 
I'm not finding stuff in the papers for this. I'm not seeing the the print ads. I can't even find a trailer for this. And you guys know, like, I mean, I think it was more early 70s where it was just like radio trailers and, you know, small spots. I mean, I've got the old 16 millimeter of the black shampoo, like TV spot, like 30 second long type of thing. But the Baron, again, and looking under all of those alternate names that we can possibly find, just not finding fuck all. It's really just this kind of uh, mysterious film. I've got the the movie came out on DVD a few times, including like one of these action pack things where it's like nine movies for $3 type of thing, or there's the, the film detective restoration. And I'm doing finger quotes for the people that are at home. It looks pretty bad. I don't think that the film really good job with this one. It's not like he's scanning the negative in at 4k or anything. It just looks pretty shoddy. So let's see the real thing. Let's see the real movie. If this were a plot of a movie we went to see now where it's about a film and no one knows anything about it and nobody connected with it has any presence on the internet, you would go, this is a ridiculous film. The premise was idiotic and I could not enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, no. It, and that's the thing too. You would think Given how little there is about there, you would think the film would be much worse than it is, right? And it's actually a pretty solid film. And so I, but, you know, everything that you're saying, like, down to the fact that there's there's no newspaper reviews, there's no ads, there's no anything, lends to the, the fact that there's a good chance it probably never actually got an official release. Um, and, and because we're also at a, at a stage now where, you know, like, this is how we, you know, the the sort of, film detective uh you know mentality where it's like okay was there the the one of the movies that comes to mind is is um uh cat catch my soul also known as santa fe satan that that patrick mcguin directed that richie havens was in which is not a particularly good movie but there were there were ads for it and there were reviews for it and and so we all knew Oh yeah, it played somewhere. It played in in New Mexico. There's like three showings, and um, the fact that there's nothing, there isn't even when you look at like the VHS releases of the Baron, they all have like really amateurish looking art that either doesn't have anybody from the movie on it, or it's it's somebody like a slapdash illustration. So I tend to, you know, give a lot of credence to what what Fenty told me which was that you know that the film was never finished and never got an actual release because i've never seen a movie poster for it there's a poster for the guy from harlem which is you know one of the worst movies you'll ever see but there's a poster for it i do think that there's an interesting story behind the scenes in addition to the movie itself that, that is like waiting to be told i totally agree and yeah like where's that doc where are those interviews you know it's like uh, it's so frustrating. And this month has been, you know, in the past, I've I've called February like Black Exploitation Month. This is more, I'm calling this Black History Month. This is really like taking these more. I would consider this more of an elevated film. I don't consider this Black Exploitation. I consider this very much a passion project, very much like Jason's film. And it's one of these like, you know, needs more information, needs more love around it. And it's just one of these movies that I consider this to be, you know, such a cut above other films, but it's just, it, it, nobody knows about it. So yeah, again, it's been such a pleasure talking with you two gentlemen that have actually seen this movie multiple times that have the information that have, you know, have, you know, you've talked with Fenty, 
Father Malone, you got to see it over in the theater twice. That's fucking amazing. I mean, I'm just so glad that we were able to actually bond over this movie because eh, not too many other people are talking about it. There's a lot of like uh, yeah, websites where it's just like, oh, we've got every black action movie or like the, the black action movie book from McFarlane Press. This is nowhere to be found in that. Yeah, it's not. It's not in it. Yeah. Which again makes me go this point in, in I'm not as hardcore as I was, say, 20, 30 years ago in, in the research and, you know, but like I, I have a pretty extensive collection of like Jet Magazine and, and, and Ebony Magazine. And it's not listed in, in any of those either. And 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 so the, the funny thing is, is, you know, you can get Blackenstein on Blu-ray. Like, like, like the fact that you can get Blackenstein on Blu-ray and and somebody posted a link on, on Facebook fairly recently. The original copy of the Blackenstein screenplay was on was selling on eBay for like a thousand dollars. I was like, I wouldn't pay ten dollars for this thing. But there's so many movies out there that are where there's there's more traces of their existence and you know there's a few that are lost or, or still presumably lost yafet koto who wrote and directed and starred in a movie called the limit i've seen the posters for it and i've seen ads for it and i've seen some reviews for it but i've never seen a trailer it's interesting because it's not a movie that's lost and we can see it but there's so much about it so many mysteries surrounding it yeah maybe when i retire in a couple of years after i get rich you know, my, my mission will be to, to find out more about it. And, and I'll dig through and see if I can find that old phone number that I had for Philip Fenty. And if I, if I can, I'll, I'll get that to you because he's got to be pushing 80 at this point, but he, you know, he may still have all his faculties. So, well, David, if you're looking for some good work, there's a woman named Mama Lou would pay about $300,000 for you. I'll give you a card as well. I haven't quite hit that point yet, but I'm still, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. That being a kept man is, is on the bucket list. So yeah, there's all these sugar daddy sites. Where are the sugar mama sites? That's what I want to know. Uh, oh God. Well, wouldn't he find it? Send me the link, please. You got it. You got it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play preview for next week's show. Top of the heat written by and starring Christopher St. John. No. Uh-uh. Ain't going to be no days like that. You're going to have to shoot me right in my face, Mr. Black P. When a black man bears his soul and tells his story, he lets it all hang out. His rage was the illness of the times. I just got back from a trip to the moon. Hassled by his soul brothers with his mother dying, he can only escape to the moon. You're going to have to kill me, nigga! Drop that knife! Drop it! What the hell are you trying to do, huh? What, are you trying to kill me, you black bastard? I put on this uniform, and I go out there in the streets, and people look at me, and they hate me! That's because you're a mean... Selfish man. Captain Latimer, what yes. has the training for the flight been like? Isolation. Uh, isolation is sort of uh, 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 like waiting at the mailbox for your welfare check. I have a little itch here. Uh. Yes, sir? Take off your uniform, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. Hey, mother, you want me to pull out my thing and blow you a new hole? Hey! What's on your pocket? Damn, brother, you the man? The most unusual picture of its time starring Christopher St. John whom you last saw in Shaft. I can do any 
damn thing I want. Come on, you nigga, bitch. So you won't be dealing for a while, baby. Top of the Heap is a powerful, dynamic story as only a black man can tell it. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Christopher St. John's Top of the Heap. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Father Malone and David Walker. So, Father Malone, what is the latest with you, sir? I'm doing a music podcast called Noise Junkies with Mondo Heather's Heather Drain and Night Mr. Walter's HP. Uh, you can find that over at weirdingwaymedia.com. I actually have, I don't know, half a dozen too many shows over there. So uh, if you want to hear any of my nonsense, that's where to go, weirdingwaymedia.com. And David, how about you? What's going on with you? Just, you know, I'm working on various different comic projects. I'm actually writing Planet of the Apes for Marvel right now. And then a couple of bigger projects for Scholastic and, and 10 Speed Press, books that won't be out for another year, year and a half. So on the surface, I look like someone who's just, doing nothing with his life but really i'm i'm blowing deadlines every day well thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening if you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth check out some of the other shows that i work on just like father malone they're all available over at weirdingwaymedia.com thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world